Welcome to the Mythical Astronomy Variety Hour. No, it's not the Variety Hour. It's the Daenerys live discussion, roundtable, anything goes, Q&A. Thanks for coming by, everyone. I'm joined by Ball the Bard and Quinn from Quinn's Ideas, who are so illustrious and well-known they need no introduction, but I'll give you a very quick introduction. Ball the Bard is from The Fundamentals, and her YouTube channel is called... I mean, The Dragon's Reign. Is the what Dragon's it is Reign, yes. And it is going to be about... The Dance of the Dragons. Yes, yes the Dance I... of the Dragons. My first script is completely done. I just need to record a video and then make it. And then that'll go up soon. Yep. Ball the Bard is getting ready to lay the lumber. She's bringing out the big guns. Focusing all her intellect and insight onto the Dance of the Dragons. And looking for parallels to the end games and just having a ton of fun with it. And of course, Quinn from Quinn's Ideas used to be Ideas of Ice and Fire. Now it is just Quinn's Ideas because you have so many ideas, they have gone beyond the realm of Ice and Fire. Indeed, yeah. I have a YouTube channel where I cover various uh, fantasy and sci-fi series, but don't worry about that. Get put on the email list for my upcoming graphic novel, Tadia. Tadia. You can just Google it. Yes. Tadia Kingbreaker. Get put on the email list. Story about witchcraft uh, and mythology. Super Ooh. excited about it. Yeah. Witchcraft. <laughs> I love witches. Awesome. I think I need to make a couple more mods so people can drop some links here. Who do I trust? Yes, Is that's a good idea. Anyone I trust? A uh, mod Mary. She's got mod in her name. Let's give her mod powers. Um, oh, I've got to go mm. over to YouTube to do that. Okay, I'll do that in a second. Uh, in any case, well, you have mod powers. Uh, Gretchen, go ahead and drop your own link in there. Self-promote. <laughs> yes. The power of the mod. There it is. All <laughs> right, so <laughs> we are going to do a few things today. Um, we are going to take as many questions as you guys can throw at us. We are going to kick around some general topics for discussion. We're going to basically approach anything in Danny's arc. I'm going to give Quinn and Ball and Melanie Lot7, who will be joining us shortly, uh, a chance to comment on some of the stuff that we've already covered in the last three Danny episodes. Um, and we're going to do a little bit of material from A Storm of Swords that we didn't finish last time. And we are going to start off with a dramatic reading which I am calling the trolling of the sellsword captains. Yes, and of course this is in Yunkai. Danny is camped outside Yunkai, and she has the captains of the Second Sons and the Storm Crows, and then the Yunkish envoy come and she banters. And we start here, and Danny throw out some of her best trolling lines, and she's she's a really good troll as it turns out. So I thought it would be fun to read some of this. So first we have the Storm Crows, and. I'm going to narrate while the bard is going to do Daenerys, and Quinn will play the role of Prendel Nagazine. He volunteered, by the way. I didn't force <laughs> that on him, just for the record. So, it was Prendel Nagazine who spoke for the sellswords. You would do well to take your rabble elsewhere, he said. You took Astapor by treachery, but Yunkai shall not fall so easily. Five hundred of your stormcrows against ten thousand of my unsullied, said Danny. I am only a young girl and do not understand the ways of war, yet these odds seem poor to me. The Stormcrows do not stand alone, said Prendel. Stormcrows do not stand at all. They fly at the first sign of thunder. Perhaps you should be flying now. I have heard that sellswords are notoriously unfaithful. What will it avail you to be staunch when the second suns change sides? That will not happen, Prendel insisted, unmoved. And if it did, it would not matter. The second sons are nothing. We fight beside the stalwart men of Yunkai. You fight beside bed boys armed with spears. When she turned her head, the twin bells in her braid rang softly. 
Once battle is joined, do not think to ask for quarter. Join me now, however, and you shall keep the gold the Yunkai paid you, and claim a share of the plunder besides, with greater rewards later when I come into my kingdom. Fight for the wise masters, and your wages will be death. Do you imagine that Yunkai will open its gates when my unsullied are butchering you beneath the walls? Woman, you bray like an ass, and make no more sense. Woman? <laughs> she chuckled. Is that meant to insult me? I would return the slap if I took you for a man. Danny met his stare. I am Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, the Unburnt, Mother of Dragons, Khaleesi to Drogo's Riders, and Queen of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros. So there you go. That's the first time we see the I am but a girl and know little of the ways of war, which Danny uses repeatedly to troll people. And it's kind of a clever line because she's basically using her disadvantage to her advantage. You know, she's she's flat out, she's sort of pointing at the elephant in the room. Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm only 15 and I just sort of wandered in here. I don't really know what I'm doing, but uh, I'm about to take your city and burn you down. So, yeah, she sounds so awesome and badass here. Yeah, and she, yeah, like for a teenage girl, like being faced with who is probably like a very large man, like wearing armor and very imposing, and she's just like sitting there, like, yeah, whatever, I'll talk, <laughs> I'll, I'll shoot the shit with you. You got some shit to throw at me, I'll throw it right back. Yeah, don't even. And it's important to um, recognize that everything Danny's doing is very intentional, uh, just like she did when she was negotiating with the wise masters, where she kept up an elaborate ruse in order to turn the situation to her advantage. She doesn't act very emotional in these negotiations and these um, confrontations. She's very calculated. She comes in with a strategy and she executes it. And she has a different strategy for each of these sellsword captains, which is one of the things I wanted to point out. So whether she's acting tough or acting meek or acting aggressive, like all of these things are calculated. This is not someone who's emotionally leaping back and forth during these conversations. So just want to point that out as we go through this. Um, so, at the end of this conversation, Danny cleverly asks if the Storm Crows are free men, knowing full well that they are, and of course they pipe up, of course we're free! And then she says, alright, well then tell everyone else my offer, and maybe some of them will have better sense than you and want to switch sides. And it turns out that, you know, she ends up, somebody does hear her, which is Dario, who's the third captain in this scene. He doesn't really say anything in the scene, but as they're leaving, he sort of nods his head to Danny, and then of course later he cuts the heads off the other two and, and turns tail. So. Pretty good strategy executed here. So the next one is Miro. Um, Quinn, I will again give you the choice if you want to narrate or do Miro. Miro's I'll kind of Miro. You'll do Miro? Okay, all right. Do I censor it or no? Just, um, just... Well, I only did half the conversation. I, I cut off some of the worst stuff, so. Um, okay. Now you can say the F word, I guess. We'll just, uh... no, yeah, don't say the F word because then YouTube will, yeah. You'll have to just just mute okay. it yourself. Okay. Do the, you know, do that. <laughs> all right, so. Miro tossed down his wine straight away, wiped his mouth with the back of his hand, and leered at Danny. I believe I, your twin sister in a pleasure house back home, or was it you? I think not. I would remember a man of such magnificence, I have no doubt. Yes, that is so. No woman has ever forgotten the titan's bastard. The bravosi held out his cup to Jiki. What say you take those clothes off and come sit on my lap? If you please me, I might bring the second sons over to your side. If you bring the second sons over to my side, I might not have you gelded. The big man laughed. Little girl, another woman once tried to geld me with her teeth. She has no teeth now, but my sword is as long and thick as ever. Shall I take it out and show you? 
No need. After my eunuchs cut it off, I can examine it at my leisure. Danny took a sip of wine. It is true that I am only a young girl and do not know the ways of war. Explain to me how you propose to defeat 10,000 unsullied with your 500. Innocent as I am, those odds seem poor to me. The second sons have faced worse odds and won. The second sons have faced worse odds and ran. At Kohor, when the 3,000 made their stand, or do you deny it? That was many and more years ago, before the second sons were led by the Titan's bastard. So it is from you they get their courage. Danny turned to Sir Jorah. When the battle is joined, kill this one first. The Exxon Knight smiled. Gladly, Your Grace. Oh, I was going to so, say it. <laughs> I cut off the rest because Miro just gets worse and worse and he gets more vulgar, but it's just more of the same. The cool thing is that Danny continues playing to his ego and talking about the second son switching sides, sort of playfully saying, oh yeah, you should come over, you can return that gold, bloody bloody. And in the end, she gives him a whole wagon full of wine casks to get his buddies drunk. The key thing is that she asks for his answer in the morning, knowing full well she's going to attack in the middle of the night when they're all drunk. Um, and she's also told the Yunkish, or she will in a minute, she's going to tell the Yunkish three days. So she's doing lots of things to make people think, you know, she's not quite ready to attack yet when she is going to. That's the setup. So um, now, Quinn, I do have to insist on doing the Yunkish envoy. This is the one I was excited about. So <laughs> okay, uh, sure. give me the narrator on this one and uh, I'll take the envoy. Okay. The man on the white camel named himself Grazden Moeras, lean and hard. He had the white smile such as Krasnas had worn until Drogon burned his face off. His hair was drawn up in a unicorn's horn that jutted from his brow. His toker was fringed with golden mirish lace. Ancient and glorious is Yunkai, the queen of cities, he said when Danny welcomed him to her tent. Our walls are strong, our nobles proud and fierce, our common folk without fear. Ours is the blood of ancient geese, whose empire was old when Valeria was yet a squalling child. You were wise to sit and speak, Khaleesi. You shall find no easy conquest here. Good. My unsullied will relish a bit of a fight. She looked to Grey Worm, who nodded. Grazdan shrugged expansively. If blood is what you wish, let it flow. I am told you freed your eunuchs. Freedom means as much to an unsullied as a hat to a haddock. He smiled at Grey Worm, but the eunuch might have been made of stone. Those who survive we shall enslave again, and use to retake Astapor from the rabble. We can make a slave of you as well, do not doubt it. There are pleasure houses in Lys and Tyrosh where men would pay handsomely to bed the last Targaryen. It is good to see you know who I am, said Danny mildly. I pride myself on my knowledge of the savage, senseless West. Grazdan spread his hands, a gesture of conciliation. And yet, why should we speak thus harshly to one another? It is true that you are common savageries. You committed savageries in Astapor, but we Yunkai are our most forgiving people. Your quarrel is not with us, Your Grace. Why squander your strength against our mighty walls when you need every man to regain your father's throne in far Westeros? Yunkai wishes you only well in that endeavor. And to prove the truth of that, I have brought you a gift. He clapped his hands, and two of his escort came forward bearing a heavy cedar chest bound in bronze and gold. They set it at her feet. Fifty thousand golden marks, Grazdan said smoothly. Yours, as a gesture of friendship from the wise masters of Yunkai. Gold given freely is better than plunder bought with blood, surely. So I say to you, Daenerys Targaryen, take this chest and go. 
Danny pushed open the lid of the chest with a small, slippered foot. It was full of gold coins, just as the invoice said. She grabbed a handful and let them run through her fingers. They shone brightly as they tumbled and fell. New minted most of them, stamped with the stepped pyramid on the face and the harpy of Gis on the other. Very pretty. I wonder how many chests like this I shall find when I take your city. He chuckled. None, for that you shall never do. I have a gift for you as well. She slammed the chest shut. Three days. On the morning of the third day, send out your slaves, all of them. Every man, woman, and child shall be given a weapon and as much food, clothing, coin, and goods as he or she can carry. These they shall be allowed to choose freely from among their master's possessions, as payment for their years of servitude. When all the slaves have departed, you will open your gates and allow my unsullied to enter and search your city, to make certain none remain in bondage. If you do this, Yunkai will not be burned or plundered, and none of your people shall be molested. The wise masters will have the peace they desire, and will have proved themselves wise indeed. What say you? I say you are mad. Am I? Danny shrugged and said, Drakaris. The dragons answered. Regal hissed and smoked, Viserion snapped, and Drogon spat swirling red-black flame. It touched the drape of Grazdan's tokar and the silk caught in half a heartbeat. Golden marks spilled across the carpets as the envoy stumbled over the chest, shouting curses and beating at his arm until Whitebeard flung a flagon of water over him to douse the flames. You swore I should have safe conduct, the Yunkish envoy wailed. Do all the Yunkai whine so over a singed tokar? I shall buy you a new one, if you deliver up your slaves within three days. Elsewise, Drogon shall give you a warmer kiss. <laughs> she wrinkled her nose. You've soiled yourself. Take your gold and go, and see that the wise masters hear my message. Grazen Moeras pointed a finger. You shall rue this arrogance. These little lizards will not keep you safe, I promise you. We will fill the air with arrows if they come within a league of Yunkai. Do you think it is so hard to kill a dragon? Harder than to kill a slaver. Three days, Grazden. Tell them, by the end of the third day, I will be in Yunkai, whether you open your gates for me or no. All right, so there we go. Uh, yeah, let's not analyze whatever accent I was just doing. I just <laughs> opened my mouth and things came out. I'm not sure what that was, but... It uh, it's you know, just trying to make him sound ridiculous and silly. But, uh, changing, it evolves, you know. It's just yeah, I don't do actual accents. It's probably better <laughs> that way. Um, so in any case, you can see Danny's got, like I said, she's using different strategy with each one of them. The main thing is that she has to project some kind of power. She has to speak to these people in a language they can understand. And so she's making threats and being nice and sort of, you know, going back and forth with it. But... Um, the, the bottom line, the main, the main deception that she's performing is just to make them think that they've got a few days to chill and think about all this, um, and when they don't. So she ends up taking the city with very little casualties, and that's actually the main thing that stuck out to me when I was looking at the taking of Astapor, or not Astapor, but Young Kai and then Marine, is that she's constantly worried about casualties, not only because she has a, not a huge army, but just because that's kind of her nature and she just doesn't, she's not the kind of commander like Tywin to just, you know, send her troops into the meat grinder in order to win the battle or whatever, so. Mm -hmm. um, let's see here. Like, for example, after they, after they win the battle, um, she's hearing about uh, the reports of their great victory from Jorah 
and she asks Jor about their own losses, to which he replies, a dozen, if that many. And the next line is, only then did she allow herself to smile. So, you know, George puts those little lines in just to show us, like, Danny's not quite happy until she hears about the casualties on her own side, and then she can relax. So, little stuff like that. So, wait, wait, you're telling me that the idea that she would just, like, you know, indiscriminately, like, burn a city where her own troops could also die, like... That doesn't make sense. You're telling me that doesn't make sense with this with this character in the books. What? 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 No, it makes perfect sense. What Let's get it all about? out. Come on. <laughs> okay, yeah, good. Oh my gosh, you guys! Did you? That's my cat. Just so you know. Wow. <laughs> yeah, she that doesn't sound like Hitler at all. Not even a little bit. No. One thing that is interesting, guys, that I noticed is that the um, it's never actually said why she decides to take Marine. So. Astapor, we can, we can see how that happens. She comes there to get the army. She realizes the only way she can get the army is to free the Unsullied and, you know, topple the masters. Once she does that, she's upended the power structure. And so later we find out that she left a council of like a healer, a priest, and a scribe or something uh, that was supposed to rule as a council. It didn't work out. King Cleon the Butcher, the first, and then the second rose instead. Um, but that, that we figured out. Now, when she moves on to Yunkai, it seems like her intention is to basically free the slaves. And so she pulls up in front of the gates and she says, give me all your slaves and I'll let you be. But she kind of knows they're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. So essentially she's coming here to take the city. So at some point in between Astapor and Yunkai, she has decided to go ahead and now start liberating slaves. It, it's no longer just a matter of getting an army. And this is interesting because in Astapor, we were trying to figure out like, well, some of this is based on pure need. She needs the Unsullied. This is the way that she can get them because she can't pay for them. But then also clearly she feels strongly about freeing the slaves and she feels bad about what the Unsullied practices and all that. But at this point, she's full on switched now to being a conqueror slash liberator, mm -hmm. meaning I'm going to sweep through Slaver's Bay and free all of these slaves. So. Thoughts on that? Like, she's she's become a revolutionary here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that Martin doesn't give us that moment of transformation, like, from her perspective. Like, that we don't see her thinking it. We just, like, see it through her actions. I think that was an interesting choice. Yeah, it was. Um, we, we get more... When we come to Marine, we get a lot more talk about how she feels about the city. And, of course, the thing about Marine is she sees the crucified children all the way there. And so that that really changes... Her, but they also, let's go ahead and skip to that. I've, I've got this actually. Uh -huh. So guys, if you scroll down on the notes to page nine, where it says ASOS Danny 5, there's a couple of good discussions about taking Marina. And hey guys, I want to make sure Mel isn't uh, messaging me on my phone. Can you uh, take a comment from the chat and hold it down for a quick second? Thank you. Sure, yeah. Let's see. <laughs> Mama Pitbull says, I think she can't let people suffer, especially since she knows what it's like to be sold and lose agency. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. It comes from her own experience. It comes from her experience. Well, she was virtually a slave of her brothers her entire life. Mm -hmm. And then she, oh, she comes right out of that situation and uh, even a, a literal situation of slavery where she's like Cal Drogo slave, literally being sold. So she definitely understands what it's like firsthand. Right. And Alyssa Patient says 163 crucified slaves. Good Queen Alisande would have done the same thing. I think you're exactly right. 
Alyssa. I think like good Queen Alison absolutely would have done the same thing that Danny did. I mean, good Queen Alison had very strong opinions about the treatment of the small folk and women and the marginalized. She'd, I mean, she would have. I can imagine her doing it and then Jahari's being like, are you sure that that was baby? We should have not done that. And she's like, oh, fuck that. F that. No. It was the right thing to do. I am told that there was a super chat at the beginning that I missed when we were doing our dramatic reading. It was from Pat. <laughs> Thank you, Pat, for the super chat. Was there a question attached or was it just a super chat? Oh, the question was, is Dario hot? What are our feelings about Dario being hot? Yeah, clearly Dario is hot. I mean, we have to conclude that because Danny doesn't go for anything other than like man candy. I mean, that's kind of her MO. <laughs> <laughs> we have to imagine that somehow he pulls off the whole blue and gold hair and tri-colored beard. I mean, you know. Look, if Dennis Rodman can pull off what he did with his hair. You know, that's like, actually the perfect comp. Right. That's perfect. He, he nailed like, that. He is like Dennis Rodman, only like with a little right. more, maybe a little with more cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, Dario's. So. There's a line where Danny says Dario swaggers when he stands still. So that kind of tells you, like, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Squisher King what are your says, <laughs> "Book Dario reminds him of Jack Sparrow." That's funny. <laughs> like, but but sober Jack. Like he doesn't. Dario doesn't do drugs. He he exists on violence and sex purely. That's his whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Danny's got a. She's got a bad boy thing. Happening. Dario is a distraction. Absolutely. She must cast him aside. I mean, I am in favor of her getting that distraction. Absolutely. And he's a potential betrayer too. I think I def I definitely see Dario as a potential betrayer. I feel like she she Danny could come to a place where she's like, I want to leave you behind, and then he could get mad about it and potentially be the one be one of her potential betrayers. But we'll see. Mm. Betrayers, as in like the the three betrayals. Yeah, exactly. The gold. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, he joined her through betrayal. Like, mm-hmm. she and she ought to know better than to trust any of the cell swords. And I don't think and she And he does. seems like someone that's very, like, he acts he acts based on passion. Like, always. Like, even, even, like, killing those other guys, like, beheading those other guys. It was based off of, like, it was an act of passion. But... Mm-hmm. What was that comment you just had up? <laughs> you telling me if this ripped-ass blue and gold double dagger-ass smoke show comes into your room and drops the heads of his two co-workers <laughs> for you, you ain't gonna hit it? Yeah. There you go. That's my man, Pat Riley. Uh, where were we? Yes. With Did Dario. You want Dario, to read? like, yeah, just okay. to flip my wig with Dario. So we were, yes, I was pulling up um, Storm of Swords, Danny Five, and this is all about the rationale for taking Marine. This will be a good start to discussing that entire dynamic. So, um... I will narrate this one so I can speed through this because I might skip a couple lines. And go ahead and still do the couple of Danny lines, Gretchen, if you, if you will. I have heard enough. Danny did not need their squabbling on top of all the other troubles that plagued her. Marine posed dangers far more serious than one pink and white hero shouting insults, and she could not let herself be distracted. Her host numbered more than 80,000 after Young Kai, but fewer than a quarter of them were soldiers. The rest, well, Sir Jorah called them mouths with feet, and soon they would be starving. The great masters of Marine had withdrawn before Danny's advance, harvesting all they could and burning what they could not harvest. Scorched fields and poisoned wells had greeted her at every hand. 
Worst of all, they had nailed a slave child up on every milepost along the coast road from Yunkai, nailed them up still living with their entrails hanging out and one arm always outstretched to point the way to Mirin. Leading her van, Dario had given orders for the children to be taken down before Danny had to see them, but she had countermanded him as soon as she was told. I will see them, she said. I will see every one and count them and look upon their faces, and I will remember. By the time they came to Marine, sitting on the salt coast beside her river, the count stood at 163. I will have this city. Danny pledged to herself once more. All right, so... You can see here, like, very clearly, she's, this is a big part of the motivation. Again, this is just coming down to she's decided to do something about slavery. It's kind of like the world is crazy. Danny's been abused and cast, cast all over the place from Westeros to Pentos into the Red Waste and the Dothraki Sea. And she finally lands on her feet here. And she's just kind of planting a flag and making a stand. And she's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to start righting wrongs here and she just sort of moves out from Astapor to Yunkai to Mirin and it starts the thing that gets her back up is this whole unsullied slave trade so again this is more about that transformation but here's more of the rationale for taking Mirin and go ahead and start with I must have the city I must have this city she told them sitting cross-legged on a pile of cushions her dragons all about her Eerie and Jiki poured wine her granaries are full to bursting. There are figs and dates and olives growing on the terraces of her pyramids, and casks of salt fish and smoked meat buried in her cellars. A fat chest of gold, silver and gemstones as well, Dario reminded them. Let us not forget the gemstones. Oh, I guess that was Dario too. That's all right, whatever. So you can see the point here. Oh. There's also a matter of food. She's, as she's freed the slaves, she's picked up all these refugees She's got the freedmen, a few of, you know, like I said, roughly a quarter of whom are officially like fighting, but they're like very unorganized, but most of them are just straight up refugees. So basically she's saying, look, I have these refugees because, you know, you MFers have been slaving the crap out of the world forever and I've come along and ended it. And now I have all these refugees, the victims of your slavery. So guess who's going to feed them? You are. That's basically what she's saying. She's like, I've got to have their food that they have in Marine to feed all of these people. There's, there's no choice. And we, that's laid clear in this conversation with Jorah. So why don't you take Jorah in this one, Quinn? Okie dokie. And it's right where it says, uh, then what do you advise Sir Jorah? That's where it starts. Oh, there's a super chat. Let me get that before I miss it. Is Danny's story arc in the show actually Fagon's or Euron's? Like one of them burns King's Landing on Dragonback and not her. Um, yeah, so I think King's Landing is actually going to get hit a few times. I think Fagon will take King's Landing from Cersei, and I, that's probably when Deceptive Baylor will go up. I do think Cersei will blow up Deceptive Baylor somehow. It seems like there's foreshadowing in that in the books. It's also an Ice Moon location, and we know the Ice Moon places are all set to blow the Wall, the Heart of Winter, and place in the Eerie, possibly places like that. So I do think that'll be the first wave. Danny will then attack King's Landing at some point, probably when Fagon holds it, and there could be wildfire caches set off by the dragons. Um, if Euron gets a dragon, that is an interesting. That's an interesting point, um, guys. I've never actually heard someone suggest that. That if Euron on a dragon would do basically what they had Danny do, like literally just torch the, the streets of the city. That's very possible. What do you think of that? Nice call, mermaid Amathea. That, yeah, that's an interesting, I could definitely see that happening with Euron doing it. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I was reading ahead at this Jorah quote. 
I, I didn't hear the question. Somebody, Mermaid Amathea suggested that instead of Danny burning King's Landing, that we might see Euron. On, if he gets a dragon, what if he's the one that like literally burns all of King's Landing, similar to what we saw on the show? What do you think about that? That makes a, a little bit of sense, because I do think Euron is probably going to be the one that gets the dragon, because he's like playing with Victarion, and he's tricked him. But somehow the horn is made to serve Euron, and will bind the dragon to Euron, most likely. That'd be interesting. Someone has to do it. Yep, there's no question that Euron is capable of it. Um, he's one of the few people, in fact, that you could think about that would happily do that. Mm -hmm. um, what's this? Oh, hey! Pew! Melanie Lot 7! Yay! Hey, I finally made it. Oh my gosh, sorry, it took me forever. Ugh. But yes, here I am, at last. I'm excited to be here. Well, I appreciate that you took an extra couple of minutes to slip on that nice mythical astronomy t-shirt, yeah. unless you just happen to be wearing it about you know town <laughs> today. I don't know. I uh, know, I came prepared. All right, so we were about to read this passage with Sir Jorah and Danny, and this is actually a really important one as far as pinning down her rationale for her decision-making in Marine. So, uh, Melanie, let's get you in here. Um, do, do, do you have the doc pulled up? Yeah, I've got it all set. Okay, so we are at the point where it says, then what do you advise Sir Jorah? It's like page 10, I believe. Got it. Are you? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you will do the purple, which is Danny. Okay. And Quinn, you go ahead and do Jorah. All right. Um, I will narrate. Actually, Baal, why don't you narrate? And I'll do the Dothraki that jump in here in red. Then what do you advise, Sir Jorah? You will not like it. I would hear it all the same. As you wish. I say let the city be. You cannot free every slave in the world, Khaleesi. Your war is in Westeros. I have not forgotten Westeros. Danny dreamt of it on some nights, this fabled land that she had never seen. If I let Marine's old brick walls defeat me so easily, though, how will I ever take the great stone castles of Westeros? As Aegon did, Sir Jorah said, with fire. By the time we reach the Seven Kingdoms, your dragons will be grown, and we will have siege towers and trebuchets as well. All the things we lack here. But the way across the lands of the Long Summer is long and grueling, and there are dangers we cannot know. You stopped at Astapor to buy an army, not to start a war. Save your spears and swords for the Seven Kingdoms, my queen. Leave Marine to the Miranees and march for West, for Pintos. Defeated? said Danny, bristling. When cowards hide behind great walls, it is they who are defeated, Khaleesi. Kojogo said. Her other blood riders concurred. Blood of my blood, said Rajaro. When cowards hide and burn the food and fodder, great cows must seek for braver foes. This is known. It is known, Jiki agreed, as she poured. Not to me. Danny set great store by Sir Jorah's counsel, but to leave Marine untouched was more than she could stomach. She could not forget the children on their posts, the birds tearing at their entrails, their skinny arms pointing up the coast road. Sir Jorah, you say that we have no food left. If I march west, how can I feed my freedmen? You can't. I am sorry, Khaleesi. They must feed themselves or starve. Many and more will die along the march, yes. That will be hard, but there is no way to save them. We need to put this scorched earth well behind us. Danny had left a trail of corpses behind her when she crossed the Red Waste. It was a sight she never meant to see again. No, she said. I will not march my people off to die. My children. There must be some way into the city. And of course, that's when Ben Brown Plump, Brown Ben Plum, uh, says, Hey, we got the stinky sewers we can crawl through. And then they <laughs> take the Robbie? city. 
But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out to Ravenous this, Reader. This <laughs> Thank hat you. tip, Ravenous Reader. There you go. <laughs> she doesn't come to my streams anymore, man. I think she's staying away from all this Danny stuff because she's like kind of anti, and she knows that I I stand Danny pretty hard. So I think maybe she'll come back when I uh, do something different. But she got a shout out anyways. So there's the okay. there's the conundrum, folks. You can see it. Like she's accumulate. You know, once she set the slaves free, and it started right after Astapor even. She ended up with a ton, thousands of refugees, mouths with feet, as Sir Jorah said. And she has, you know, she can't abandon them. I mean, look at the choice there. Is she really just going to just leave them to be recaptured by all the soldiers and thrown back into slavery worse than before? Like, no, she's not going to do that. So. so there is like there's the practical element that Danny is operating under, which is I got to find a place to put all these people and to feed all these people. And then there's also the moral element to it, whereas I can't abide this system of slavery continuing and I kind of have the resources or the potential to stop it. And so she can't just leave it how it is. Like she has to go because it's who she is. And that's potentially the same kind of thinking that's going to lead her to confront the others when mm -hmm. she finds out that that is the real threat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. All right. So I actually want to go back to, guys, um, it's page four, where it says chapter opening. And there's a quote here about after Danny has taken Astapor. And this is the, the talking about the freedmen and the refugees that she picked up. We sort of glossed over this, but there's a couple important lines in here. So, uh, Melanie, why don't you keep doing with the purple? Gretchen, keep doing the narrator. And uh, Quinn takes her Jorah. What say you? Can we defeat this army? Easily, Sir Jorah said. But not bloodlessly. Blood aplenty had soaked into the bricks of Astapor the day that the city fell, though little of it belonged to her or hers. We might win a battle here, but at such cost we cannot take the city. That is ever a risk, Khaleesi. Astapor was complacent and vulnerable. Yunkai is forewarned. Danny considered. The slaver host seemed small compared to her own numbers, but the cell swords were a horse. She'd ridden too long with Dothraki not to have a healthy respect for what mounted warriors could do to foot. The Unsullied could withstand their charge, but my freedmen will be slaughtered. The slavers like to talk, she said. Send word that I will hear them this evening in my tent, and invite the captains of the sellsword companies to call on me as well, but not together. The storm crows ride at midday, the second sun's two hours later. As you wish, Sir Jorah said. But if they do not come... They'll come. They will be curious to see the dragons and hear what I might have to say, and the clever ones will see it for a chance to gauge my strength. So you can see, like I said, the dynamic that's coming up here. She's already got a certain amount of refugees. The people she's calling her freedmen, like I said, they're barely a fighting force. If they were to try to stand up against real soldiers, they would be slaughtered. So that is, that is the situation she is in. And this next little bit, which I'm going to skim through here, uh, expands on these ideas. So it says, Within the perimeter, the Unsullied had established the tents were going up in orderly rows, with her own tall golden pavilion at the center. A second encampment lay close beyond her own, five times the size, sprawling and chaotic. This second camp had no ditches, no tents, no sentries, no horse lines. Those who had horses or mules slept beside them for fear they might be stolen. Goats, sheep, and half-starved dogs wandered freely amongst the hordes of women, children, and old men. Danny had left Astapor in the hands of a council of former slaves, led by a healer, a scholar, and a priest. 
Wise men, she thought, and just. Even so, tens of thousands preferred to follow her to Yunkai rather than remain behind in Astapor. I gave them the city, and most of them were too frightened to take it. So this is where Danny is starting to run into the whole cultural problem of just like freeing slaves that have been conditioned to slavery their whole lives and that don't have economic security or any sort of base to begin building a new society and they're in turmoil. So she's she's only 15, she hasn't thought all this through. So now she's basically coming up against the realities of what she has done here. And the, the quote continues, the raggle-taggle host of freedmen dwarfed her own, but they were more burdened than benefit. Perhaps one in a hundred had a donkey, a camel, or an ox. Most carried weapons looted from some slaver's armory, but only one in ten was strong enough to fight, and none were trained. They ate the land bare as they passed, like locusts and sandals. Yet Danny could not bring herself to abandon them as Sir Jor and her blood riders had urged. So everyone's telling her to cut them loose right at the beginning, right as it's starting. And yet Danny could not bring herself to abandon them. Um, I told them they were free. I cannot tell them now they are not free to join me. She gazed at the smoke rising from their cook fires and swallowed a sigh. She might have the best foot soldiers in the world, but she also had the worst. So, you know, this is the problem that she's dealing with. And that's why she decides to go and march up to Yunkai and demand their slaves and also food and armor. She's like, yeah, give me your slaves, but also turn them out. They're allowed to pick uh, stuff from the master's houses and all that stuff. So comments, thoughts? Um, you know, how else are they going to equip themselves? I mean, take what they can and go with it. And, you know, I mean, that's part of caring for her people is, you know, you're not going to loot a sit or, you know, you're not going to free your slaves and then not provide them with anything. Um, well, it shows you how like smart and resourceful Daenerys is. I mean, because I like when people criticize Daenerys, they're always like, oh, like she's given everything. She has help. She's got Jorah. She's got the dragons. But no, Daenerys is very intelligent and she 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 knows how to maneuver situations to get what she wants. Uh, and that shows here when she's trying to figure out how to how can I get food and resources? Yeah. Yep. So it's kind of, again, a confluence of events. And I like the way that George has written this. Um, because it, it, it leaves, there's multiple motivations here at play, and it, it leaves the reader to sort of try to figure out, you know, what, what, what her decision-making is. Just like with the Unsullied, you know, she had a range of choices. She needed the troops. She's also repulsed by slavery, and shows she threaded the needle by liberating the Unsullied, essentially. Um, but then you break it, you bought it. And this, this begins, this is kind of how it goes in all of Slaver's Bay. As she starts disrupting things, She's trying to take responsibility. It's not done perfectly. Um, and in, when we go through A Dance with Dragons, there's a lot of her failures that are highlighted. And nobody is harder on Danny than Danny. Um, most of the failures that we see Danny make are coming in her inner monologue as she sits there and reflects on all the choices that she makes from executing the slavers to, um, you know, she crucifies 163 of the masters when she gets to Marine, of course. and. You know, she thinks back about Astapor, which collapsed after she left, and all these things. So we'll get into that next time, but it's, you can see the beginnings of it laid out here. And like I said, I think it's well written because it puts her in these positions where there isn't a perfect solution, and she's got to do her best, and George doesn't let her off the hook. You know, he, all, the, all the responsibilities of her choices are here. But at the heart of it is this 
is the is the heart of Danny, which is a good-hearted person, and it starts with wanting to do the right thing. And everything we talked about last time about her concept of a king and what a king is supposed to do: give himself to the people and do justice. And that's what she's beginning to try to do. And it's a continuation of her motherhood arc because I mean, what does a mother do but provide and take care of her children? Like she's and one of the things, like if you want to put it in modern terms, she's a single mom. <laughs> trying to like trying to do her best to feed her kids and who are her people and there just happen to be thousands of them that she's taken responsibility for taking care of and it's interesting because it mirrors John finding a way at the wall to feed the wildlings and all of the um the men of Castle Black uh, it mirrors what we will probably see with Sansa if the sh- I do think that this is one of the things that the show got right is with Sansa is that she's going to become someone who's going to take charge of trying to feed, learning how to, you know, feed the people, whether that's just the Erie or the Erie in the Riverlands or also the North. But like, that's going to be part of what she does is like find a way to feed people. And that's what Danny's trying to do, too. She's also like, I have all of these starving people that I'm responsible for taking care of. Like, I have to feed them. And Crispy pipes in on, on the same lines, Gretchen, saying, George has mentioned he always wondered what Aragorn did after winning the battle and becoming king. He's not a right. fan of easy, happy endings. He's illustrating this human conflict with Danny, And like you said, also with John, and also in other places. So it's, it's interesting because right. we've always thought about like, well, after the big climax, um, you know, George will do a little more to deal with that. But he's actually doing it already. That's a very astute observation, Crispy. That that is that is a lot of Aragorn's tax policy. That's kind of what we're right. we're dealing with. Only it's like, what's your mm-hmm. policy for replacing slavery? Right. Uh, which is a I was question. just thinking of the motherhood aspect specifically because you know what happens when you give birth to a child is you know Melanie would know like the your milk comes in because you're immediately like you give birth to a child you got to feed it like that's what moms do and Danny oh, right. has just okay. in some sense like given birth to this nation of people. They're her children now. And so she immediately has to start thinking Mm -hmm. about how to feed and take care of them as that's what mother, that's part of one of the elements of motherhood is when, when you have a baby, you got to take care of like your body responds by, you know, here's how you take care of it. But in this sense, like Danny is taking on the role of like providing and feeding her children. Um, So I just think it's interesting, especially that George has, so unified the idea of motherhood with the idea of leadership with Danny. They're kind of inex- they're inextricable in this situation. Her as queen and her as mother are like the same thing. And breaker of chains, like all of that is all intertwined together and you can't easily pull it apart. Yeah, and that's what I was saying about the dragon Misa thing, which I thought initially was going to be this, you know, one side of the coin, the other side of the coin. But actually, no, the dragon mother is how Danny should be seen and her dragon power is used to protect her children. And Nine Nichols points out it's ironic that Danny never had a mother, but she is a mother to her people. That is interesting. We always talk about how Danny never had children, and so she adopts all these people instead. But it's also true that part of the longing for the house of the red door is that childhood she didn't have. A big part of that is the mother that, that died giving birth to her. So that's mm-hmm. that's a good point, Nine Nichols. Yeah. And Chicken Lipstick points out, um, doesn't Sandy, Danny suckle her dragons? And yes, she does. She does right after she hatches them. Mm -hmm. I was getting ready to say something about that. Um, You know, and just really quickly too, uh, you know, there's the passage as she's going to base Dothrak where her milk dries up because she is, she's starving along with her people and her milk dries up and she can't feed her dragon. She can't feed her people. Mm -hmm. And she's, you know, kind of sucked into this desperation. Uh, But 
she conquers it because she's smart and she's observant and she has everything that one needs to be a good leader. Yeah. And I've got, um, yeah, and I've got a little quote from the MISA section. Um, it's it's long section, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I did pull a couple of paragraphs that I want to read. And since we're on that topic, seems the right time to do it. So, um, Gretchen, why don't you do Danny again, and I will take the narration here. Danny found herself wondering whether he was right about Dario. She felt very lonely all of a sudden. Marie Mazdor had promised that she would never bear a living child. House Targaryen will end with me. That made her sad. You must be my children. She told the dragons. My three fierce children. Arstan says dragons live longer than men, so you will go on after I am dead. And this very much um, sets up the Misa moment at the end of the chapter, where she thinks about this again. It's the same inner monologue. It says, and so this is right after the slaves have started streaming out of Young Kai, and they are just starting to say Misa. And she asks, um, what does that mean? And Jorah says, or somebody tells her, it means mother. Uh, so basically, this is the beginning of the Misa moment. I skipped some of that text, but this picks up where, with Danny's inner monologue, and it says, Danny felt a lightness in her chest. I will never bear a living child. She remembered. Her hand trembled as she raised it. Perhaps she smiled. She must have, because the man grinned and shouted again, and others took up the cry. Misa, they called. Misa, Misa. They were all smiling at her, reaching for her, kneeling before her. Uh, Mela, some called her, while others called Alala, or Karthi, or Tato. But whatever the tongue, it all meant the same thing. Mother. They are calling me mother. The chant grew, spread, swelled. It swelled so loud that it frightened her horse. The mare backed and shook her head and lashed her silver-gray tail. It swelled until it seemed to shake the yellow walls of Yunkai. More slaves were streaming from the gates every moment, and as they came, they took up the call. They were running toward her now, pushing, stumbling, wanting to touch her hand, to stroke the horse's mane, to kiss her feet. Her poor blood riders could not keep them all away, and even strong Belwas grunted and growled in dismay. Sir Jorah urged her to go, but Danny remembered a dream she had dreamed in the House of the Undying. They will not hurt me, she told him. They are my children, Jorah. She laughed, put her heels into the horse, and rode to them, the bells in her hair ringing sweet victory. She trotted, then cantered, then broke into a gallop, her braids stream, streaming behind. The freed slaves parted before her. Mother, they called from a hundred throats, a thousand, ten thousand. Mother, they sang, their fingers brushing her legs as she flew by. Mother, mother, mother. And so this really is putting a point on it here. Um, first, we're given the idea that Danny doesn't have, she, she loses baby Rago, but then she has the dragons. But this is actually the real fulfillment of her motherhood. She doesn't, she loses her child, but becomes mother to an entire nation of her own nation that she's building, basically, of the downtrodden. It started in the Great Grass Sea when she was collecting the victims so that she, you know, brought into her Kalasar, and now she's freeing the slaves and taking in the refugees. And this is why she can't leave Marine. This is why she spends all of the Dance with Dragons there. Even though it's kind of frustrating to the reader, she really does take responsibility for all of these people and refuses to abandon them. And that's really like, you could almost say George is taking a long time to like belabor the point. This is why it's so outrageous that D&D missed this point. Like she spends an entire book trying to care for people 
that aren't even Westerosi. They're not even the people of her homeland where she wants to go and rule. So how then is she going to go to Westeros and start killing her own people? She's, she's not going to. I hope by now that everyone that is watching these streams is like very well convinced that Danny's ending is not going to be emotionally anything like what we saw on the show. I hope we've, hope we've pounded that nail into the coffin. But. Right. And I feel like every time we talk about it, just more and more, like we find another way that we're like, oh, this doesn't make sense either. And oh, wait, this doesn't make sense either. Oh, this doesn't fit. That doesn't fit. And there's like there's criticisms to be made of Danny. I mean, she's trying to do a very impossible thing, and she's inexperienced, and she has different advisors, and you know she's trying to learn how to do this. There's definitely it's not perfect, but the the core thing that that you can't miss is the what she cares about, what's important to her, and what guides all of her actions. So, and this is this is just so such a personal moment here. The the tie from. Danny's loss and her longing for family to this moment. Like she's, this is her finding her family and finding her role in life, feeling like she's doing something right. She's accomplishing something. And this leads to all the anguish that she goes through in a dance with dragons because she feels the weight of being responsible for all these people so keenly that when it, mm -hmm. you know, any of them suffer, then it, it really affects her. It's just such a contrast between her and like the Lannisters, like Tywin and Cersei even Tyrion, who like tries to do the right thing because it's like strategically, you know, smart or like amuses him, you know, or whatever. Like, but this is what a real ruler should should be like. Yeah. And Gretchen, you always love to talk about how Danny and Sansa have a lot in common, and I I strongly agree with that. And you mentioned earlier the idea that Sansa's one of the things she's going to be doing is taking charge of feeding people um, mm -hmm. during this really tough time. So I think that. I don't know, I'm definitely looking forward to the potential interactions between Danny and Sansa. And, you know, when you sit around and wonder how that's going to go, consider what their values are. They might have different political goals, but they have, they share a lot of the same values. Mm-hmm. Yep. Don't they? Yeah, they really, really do. Which is why the idea of them being antagonistic doesn't, like, never made a lot of sense to me, because it feels like they have a lot, they have a lot in common. They've both experienced, you know, sexual violence and um manipulation and you know domestic violence like they've both suffered very similar things but they also have shared values they value taking care of the vulnerable they value being loved like um sansa specifically says she'll make the people love me but danny you can see danny has a very similar value she doesn't want when she thinks that people are afraid of her or her dragons like she agonizes over the idea that people are afraid of her or afraid of her dragons or afraid that they'll conflate her with her dragons and think of her as like cruel because she wants to be beloved by her people because I mean she thinks of herself as their mother and their caretaker in a similar way that Danny does so yeah, yeah I think they would have a lot in common I was just going to say that Sansa doesn't have quite the experience that Danny does of being sold into slavery, but the abuse that she suffers at the hands of the Lannisters goes a long way to sort of popping all the little bubbles of privilege and fantasy that she has and connecting her with something that's more real. And I think that in the in the Eerie, she'll continue that education as well. And it's not as brutal, but she was sold into a political marriage at the same age as Danny was. Mm -hmm. Like true. I think we are meant to see parallels between what 
Sansa experienced when she was married off to to Tyrion. Not necessarily the the wedding night or the the sexual encounters, but the idea of yeah. they are young women who have zero control over who they're going to marry, and they're literally married off to someone who, I mean, Sansa's married off to like a member of the family that slaughtered her own family, um, and is meant to just like be a good wife and take it and love him and be supportive and do all the things that she's supposed to do and and Danny has something similar like their husbands are treat them differently in you know in many ways but they're in similar situations which I think is part of Martin trying to point out that you know Danny's situation is clearly like a clin to slavery but that all marriages between the high lords and Westeros are pretty confining mm-hmm. and restrictive and pre- repressive to women by very yeah. nature the fact that they have no choice in the matter yeah melody yep, i'm and- sure you and i have talked about that before so. yeah we have um I, I mean like i feel like i don't really have too much to add because i think that sums it up really well uh you know everything that we've spoken about but um yeah sorry <laughs> no worries cool so um i've got the mysa stuff here this and of course the the climax of a storm of swords is uh, the end of her sixth chapter where Zaro Zoandaxos, good old Zaro, shows up in Mirene. He's like, "Oh, look at you! You've come, you've come up in the world. When you were at my house, you weren't, you know, Jack Diddley and all that." <laughs> um, but basically, he offers her thirteen ships, which is enough to take her people, her like her unsullied and her Kalasar, basically, but not any of the refugees back to Westeros. Um, and Barristan is all about it. He's like, you've done pretty well here, but the people of Westeros need you, and that's really what you're supposed to do. So we, we you know, we asked for ships. Here we got ships. Let's do it. And she, she wants it as she thinks about it, but she decides that she can't because she would be abandoning all of these, basically 100,000 people or more, back to slavery. Mm-hmm. And what's the whole point of everything she did if she's going to do that? And so she doesn't. And it's it's a pretty good climax if you ask me as far as you know ramming home the themes that 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 have been coming at us this whole time in her arc it's it's really just that puts a point on it right at the end when she makes that decision so and that goes back to what we were talking about um at the, at the end of the live stream that we did together last um the idea that Danny isn't leaving them without a plan and that we're probably going to see part of that plan in Tiwao and I'm really looking forward to seeing that you know, she's not leaving the people that she has freed to, like, just descend back into a system of slavery. And I, I'm very curious to see what George has to say about what, you know, Danny's actions are going to be to set up a system that prevents them from falling back into slavery. Or, you know, maybe George is going to show us that, like, ooh, there's no easy way and they do descend back into slavery. And that's, like, really sad to think of. But uh, either way. I'm looking forward to T-Wow and finding out. I think they'll be on a path for evolution. You know, I hope so. Because, you know, I think like, that's ugh. that's part of D- Danny's character. You know, the fact that she is kind of like a modern day legendary figure. And, you know, she is kind of like this symbol of like rapid change through fire, mm-hmm. through transformation. Um, and so that's what she's she's coming over there and doing. And she d- she does all this in like a matter of months. It's all happening very, very quickly, mm-hmm. and these rumors are spreading all across the world. The the, the, the legend uh, of of the lost princess, the dragon queen, and you even see that chapter in the beginning of A Feast for Crows, where they're all kind of like discussing different aspects of Danny's myth 
but they don't know because they don't have our perspective. All of these stories are true. So in that way, she is kind of like a legendary figure. There's like a myth being built. So I could see, I could mm -hmm. see at the end of this, the East has been changed forever. You know, and you know, yeah. So we'll see if I George really Martin so. does set it up and he shows us how she builds the system and puts it in place. We'll see. And so there was an interesting comment that I lost track of in the chat, but it was about Tyrion. Okay, so we've discussed the fact that show Tyrion has been obviously very whitewashed. And in the books, Tyrion seems to be going mostly down a, a fairly darker path. And his whole thing is revenge against Cersei. So when he meets uh, Danny in this book at some point, we have said that he's probably more likely to be the bad devil on her shoulder, not the angel like he is in the show, but one that encourages her to use her dragon power, attack Westeros, definitely, you know, F Cersei and let's burn the Red Keep or whatever. Um, however, somebody just made the point that Tyrion might help Danny unlock the political puzzle in Meereen mm -hmm. because he will have the motivation to move on and leave Marine. He's going to see that Danny is unwilling to leave until they have some solution. So in the show, they just leave Dario in charge and sail off, which is kind of funny. Um, King Dario. <laughs> but I could see somebody's pointing out that, that Tyrion could help them design an actual political system that, that sticks. Um, and what do you guys think of that? I think that's an interesting yeah. point. I mean, they didn't use Tyrion in the show. He he barely he didn't do anything after he had after he got to Essos pretty much but fail. Um, he basically panicked. Mm -hmm. No no no. That was he all he, did. he yeah. drank and knew things. So I, I thought that was the purpose of Tyrion anyway. I that's exactly what I thought was was happening because like you got Tyrion who 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 did so well in King's Landing and he's coming into Danny's camp and she's got all these problems over here. It just seemed like exactly where it was leading, but yeah, it's probably what we'll get in the books. Mm -hmm. Shauna Bass has a comment that says, I think Tyrion is the white lion pelt that hangs on her, piloting her and manipulating her to war, which is an interesting piece of potential symbolism because she drapes herself in the white lion. There's a white, there's a, there's a white lion galloping through a field in one of her House of the Undying visions, I want to say. And that's all. People have wondered if that's a double reference to oh. both the Harakar and the Tyrion coming. So, Yeah, potentially. We shall see. Um... Super Chat. Donnell Peoples says, I can't see Danny burning a city full of innocents, however, Danny deciding to adopt the world and having the means to enforce her vision with an ever growing army and dragon seems a likely outcome. However, her, her ultimate destiny is to confront the others. So I think this full, falls into the potential traps. Uh, category, you know, the, I've, I've, mm -hmm. I basically have said the Iron Throne. That's that's what it represents. Is like a distraction from the others. The Game of Thrones that the High Lords play. All that stuff that it represents. That's what it means for Danny as well. And so the idea that she has in her head of conquering Westeros with dragons is something that she's going to have to eventually put aside so that she can go north. So I do think that this will be a temptation for a while, and this is how George will make it tempting is like well danny has if anyone's going to be in charge it should be danny because she has good ideals and she has the right uh moral uh, compass to do this so we won't see the 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 Tyrion speech from the show well well of course she liberated everybody so now she's a dictator like obviously that doesn't make sense however there will be of course a temptation to use her power to set the world right it's a pretty easy call in slaver's bay but it's not going to be quite as clear when she gets to Westeros, especially if Fagon is doing a half-decent job. My name is Fagon. So, yeah, that okay. is going to be a sticky thing there. 
So I'm, I want to break in and just make the comparison and forgive me. I'm not like a super duper Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, and it's been many, many moons, but we have like the figure of Galadriel who's, you know, she, she's tempted by this power and she has this idea that she's going to be a terrible, beautiful, but In good. In the case of a dark lord, you should have a queen. Thank Not you. dark, but <laughs> terrible and beautiful as the dawn. Thank Treacherous you. Treacherous exactly as the that. sea. Stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. Wow. <laughs> I, nicely done. Um, <laughs> exactly that. And I don't think that Danny's going to fall for that trap. Uh, you know, I think that Danny has been set up with enough um, compassion, true God, <laughs> with enough compassion and enough understanding of what the commoners go through, that that temptation is going to be tempered in her personality and she won't fall for the same trap. So Tracy uh, is thinking that it will go in a similar order to the show where she goes north first. I really don't think so. I'm not a thousand percent <laughs> sure, but I do feel like the King's Landing is, like thematically it makes sense for her to walk up to the brink of that and then set it aside and go north to find her true calling to fight the others. I do think she will end up sacrificing herself to defeat the others, or if, if you really want to go out there, maybe she'll have to become the Night Queen in order to get them to calm down or something like that and lead them back into the trees, who knows. But I, don't, I think that she will not live past the story and i think that her death will be you know heroic fully heroic probably the most heroic thing in the books it should be um but yeah i really don't think she's going to go back to king's landing i think it is going to be the starks going back to king's landing to boot out cersei because the order that i've constructed this is my headcanon fagon takes king's landing from cersei that's going to happen in the next book cersei's going to go to casterly rock I think George has said in an interview that we will eventually see Casterly Rock, so that's the logical way for it to happen. Cersei retreats to Casterly Rock. Again, think about Saruman getting kicked out of Orthanc, and then what's going to happen yeah. is um, Danny takes, or Danny, so Fagon's in King's Landing. Danny comes to King's Landing. They fight. Fagon dies, maybe, but at some point, Danny realizes, oh, I've got to go fight the others. Here's Jon Snow saying, you know, we really need to look at these cave paintings and, 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 and you know figure out what this is all about so she goes north and then while she's in the north and king's landing is basically empty or maybe fagon is still there who knows um cersei will come back to king's landing so the last movement that we need is to kick cersei out of king's landing just as Saruman came back to the shire and had to be kicked out of the shire at the end but i think it will be the starks that do that and that's where we'll get king bran and so what the show did very sloppily is they almost made it look like Bran engineered Daenerys' downfall so he could be king, which is yeah. not at all the message that was supposed to be communicated, but it ended up looking that way. So I think in the books, it'll be a lot more separation. Danny has gone north, defeated the others, and only after that is when Bran steps up to become king. That is my headcanon, but guys, feel free to tear it up. What do you think? Cool. Like, that makes a lot more sense to me, too. I mean, it just seems set up that way. I don't know. I think if Danny dies, too, like the myth of Danny is not going to die. It might even become stronger, especially in the East, right? So yeah, we'll see. Mm -hmm. Someone kind of like earlier, oh, I don't know how to change names earlier said it's the age of heroes again when we were talking about Indeed. the myth of Danny, when you were talking about mm -hmm. the myth of Danny. And I think that makes a lot of sense. He's actually set up several characters to have these kinds of like 
potentially become the same kinds of folk legends as Bran the Builder, Simeon Star Eyes, you know, um, all of the, or even like Brave Danny Flint, like heroes that are remembered in song and we don't actually know, like in future generations, they might not actually know what Danny actually did. They will know the Misa. myth of Danny, but they might, yeah, they will know, they will know Misa, but they might not know how different that is from what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, they are going to become the new legends for the future. I think he set up several characters to have that arc, you know, and that makes that a lot of sense. That story of Danny, you know, appearing out of the ashes is going to be told for generations and generations and generations. Right. So. Right. Yeah, I'd be curious it, to see like a thousand years later how like the myths and the legends have evolved. Yeah, it makes me think of that point in uh, Lord of the Rings when Sam and Frodo are at Mount Doom. And they're mm-hmm. sitting there and everything's falling apart. And they're like, do you think they'll tell stories about us? Yeah, exactly. like, yeah, they will. Mm-hmm. And I think that something that Danny will run into is the Mad King reputation problem. Um, especially if she attacks King's Landing. Uh, the closest I think we'll get to the show is like, she's fighting in King's Landing. The dragons end up setting off the wildfire. And that causes a lot more civi- civilian casualties than she ever intends. She gets a reputation as a butcher. But the thing is, of course, she will feel horrible about that instead of like totally fine and cool with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's possible one of the sacrifices Danny could make is her reputation, meaning she gets a bad reputation at King's Landing and decides to go north and fight the others instead of like trying to clean up her reputation or do anything about it. And so she allows herself to be villainized in order to go and do the right thing. That's something that could happen. At the very least, it'll be a dynamic as far mm-hmm. as people talking about her as a monster and all those things, so. I like that idea in the context of self-sacrifice. And, you know, she has this reputation that precedes her. She has all of these titles, titles. It's what Ned does. Exactly. Or John, too. Exactly. And she takes the honorable path and titles, titles be damned. She does what's right. It's Jamie. Yeah, Jamie, too. Good point. Yeah. It's Jamie, like, being willing to be labeled and branded the Kingslayer if it meant doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be potent if Danny ma- makes essentially a similar choice to Jamie uh, in a similar situation. That would be cool. Yep. That would be really uh, Yeah, and there's also a bit of that in Marine, too. Yeah, as Mama Pipples points out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, she's willing, she's willing to take a hit in her reputation to do, to do the right thing. Yes, Rhaegar Show shout out. Thank you, Mystica Ferry, making me happy. In case you missed it, folks, the Rhaegar Show is burning up the internet. (laughs) This is my my 20-minute Witcher Rhaegar meme, essentially. It is on my YouTube channel. You can find it. In case you missed it, it's uh, very stupid funny. Highly amusing. Highly amusing. I still haven't seen The Witcher. Me neither. (laughs) I I tried, like, I, I made it through about, like, 25, 30 minutes of the first episode, and I was like, nope. I have not, not tried. <laughs> I've heard so too many mixed things. things. Can we talk about Fagon for a second? Because I've ne- we've never, like, I've thrown out the this this rough scenario many times, but we've never really gotten into the weeds. So the House of the Undying, you know, there's um, Slayer of Lies is Danny's title that's given right before it says a cloth dragon on poles before a cheering crowds. Mm-hmm. And it says mother of dragons, slayer of lies. So a cloth dragon or a mummer's dragon is just that. It's like that Chinese New Year. It's, it's, that's basically what George is talking about. It's a bunch of people on poles and it's 
paper and cloth and it creates a big dragon and they carry it down the procession. It's very, very fun. I used to live in San Francisco, so I've been to more than one Chinese New Year. Uh, in any case, um, the idea that this is Slayer of Lies means, you know, and the idea of a mummer's dragon, a pretend dragon, this is why Phagon is probably fake. Like the symbolism tells you the truth, guys. Sorry, I know, I know we love the Trugon action, but he is the mummer's dragon, which means he's not really who he says he is. Danny's role is going to be to slay that lie. So how is she going to slay that lie, and what is that going to mean? Is Phagon going to die? Does he have to die in order for her to slay the lie? And the fact that there are cheering crowds for the mummer's dragon implies another problem, meaning that Phagon could be popular. He might be doing a decent job at, at you know, better than Cersei, because he's replacing Cersei. He's going to look pretty good. So I'd love to hear from you guys anything about how you think this dynamic between Danny and Fagon is going to go? Will Danny know always that he's fake? Will there be a moment where she wonders if he's real? How's Can that going to play out? Melanie, just go ahead. Pop in here? Okay, so what if it comes down to the scene? Um, okay, we have the scene in the show where John meets up with a <laughs> John meets up with a dragon and. The dragon's like, you know, looks like he's going to eat him. Drogon's like, you know, sniffs him instead like a big old puppet dog. And what if, uh, what if there's a similar situation where Danny meets Fagon and everybody's like, well, if you're a Targaryen, then sure, you should be able to control dragons. And Drogon is just like chomp. We do, need, we do need somebody to get eaten by a, a dragon. Like, George had a lot of fun with the dance in the Dance of the Dragons having Rhaenyra get eaten in six bites, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> saving the seventh for the stranger, according to the Large maesters, right? snack. So yeah, if somebody's gonna get eaten by a dragon, it should be Fagon, shouldn't it? That would, that would yeah. interestingly mirror, um, uh, Tris, uh, not Tristane, uh, Quentin. It would mm, be an interesting yeah. echo of Quentin. Mm. Quentin That's travels true. across the sea and gets eaten by a dragon when he tries to tame it. And then, um, you know, Fagon, like goes the opposite direction. He goes from the east to the west to try and claim a dragon and gets eaten. And it might mirror echo, or echo is probably the better word, when Tyrion flies his dragon across the board and kills him. Yeah, okay. technically Quentin did not get eaten. He was burned. He so was I burned. want somebody to get eaten. But go ahead, Quentin. Burned. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea of a Fagon getting chomped up by the dragon. I mean, because he uses the word slay. And I think that has a specific connotation, like to end mm. the life of something. So it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. Slayer of lies. Done. Yeah. It would finished. also be the opposite. Uh, LML, you brought up Rhaenyra. So in in the dance, Rhaenyra is eaten by her brother's dragon. So it'd be interesting to see this Aegon, who is a parallel to the Aegon in the dance. Very clearly, those two characters are meant to be parallel. To be eaten by a dragon instead. Instead of being the one sicking his dragon on someone else to eat them, it would be like an interesting like inversion to have Aegon the usurping king, the false usurping king, being eaten by the dragon, as opposed to the one sending his dragon to eat someone else. Sorry, sorry, Trugon. I don't know how to change names. Is all like I feel like I'm He's being like attacked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it would be another way for Danny to feel a lot of guilt. Um, if he, if if George wants to give Danny a lot of guilt. Her thinking of herself as being a kinslayer, um, if she's involved somehow in the death of Aegon. It would be funny if, like, the dragon just, like, attacks him, and then she's like, no, stop! And then it just, <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> slinging him around, and it just won't stop, like, killing him. 
That would be hilarious. Oh, Strogon, <laughs> put that down. Strogon, come here right now. Put that down. Have, so, okay. Have any I, of you... Let me grab Sorry, this question ahead. really quick, Mel. I'll come right back to you. Sure, so uh, Beatrice asks, do you think Fagon will be discovered? You know, how it would be interesting to see John Con's reaction. I can't see how that information will come out. Well, Tyrion already knows. Mm. So he's going to tell Danny. It's just going to be a question of how much Danny believes Tyrion. But Tyrion will definitely tell her. So. Well, and we've got other characters who are going to be in King's Landing who who might be able to see through the lies as well. You have Arya mm. and Martell going, who's heading that direction. You have, um, which sand snake? Is it Tyene? I think it's yeah, Tyene. I, I think Arya's going to buy it, though. How would she know he's fake? No, I'm just saying these are these are people who might potentially be able to see through the lie. Like, they knew mm. Elia. Like, they knew, like, they might... Mm-hmm be able to see through it or might have knowledge somehow. I feel like I feel like Doran is skeptical. And Doran and Ariane seem to be I think Ariane is skeptical as well. I think they're I think they're on the same hmm. page about this. I think they're on the same okay. page about most everything right now after their big long conversation that we never got to see on screen. And it may I think be, they're on the same page. It may be a long shot, but there is the character Marwin too. That's headed to Daenerys, Ooh. and his whole thing is like wrapped up. In, it seems like in what killed the dragons the first time, and preventing it from happening another time, and like trying to figure out why exactly magic is coming back. Like that seems like he's all tied up in that. He's got the glass candles. He's heading towards Daenerys. So I wonder what role he might play, and I guess like leading her like on a specific path or not. We'll see. I'm excited. Like I think you and I see eye to eye on some of these like. B characters, Quinn, because like I'm, I'm rubbing my hands. I'm like ready for I'm, Marwyn. I'm, I want to know because yeah, he's he's tied into so many other people. Like he's tied into mm-hmm. Miriam Asdor. Like that's yeah. that's weirdly like specific. And you know, Miriam Asdor was associated with Marwyn, and then also Kyvern. And both of these mm-hmm. people are doing kind of like necromancy things. You know, yes. like Kyvern and Miriam Asdor like doing whatever she did with Drogo. So that'd be interesting to see how he's yeah. He's got all of this information yeah. locked up and. At some point, I'm assuming it's going to become unlocked. Yeah. And what are what's everybody going to do with all that information? Yeah, he could be her into like the whole magical side of things. Whereas like Quaith is like, I'm going to just be mysterious and only come sometimes. <laughs> he seems like the guy that's going to be like, Hey, straight up, this is what's going on. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like this is the deal. Let me give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Marwyn is definitely one of my favorite side characters. I think I may have misspoke though. Tyrion didn't. He's skeptical of Fagon, I, I guess it's not true to say that he figured it out. He doesn't have proof. He figured out first that he was supposed to be Fagon, but very quickly moved on to being very skeptical. He talks about how they grew him from a bean and all this stuff. So <laughs> I think that he'll probably plant skepticism in Daenerys, but I'm wrong to say that he will flat out tell Daenerys that he's fake. He will tell her that he thinks that he might be fake. So Danny will be wrestling with that probably. Be wary. Unless she has like, you know, magic glass candle insight or, or something, or just should probably put it together. She chews on the undying prophecies all the time. So she might figure out that this must be the Marmor's dragon, but she probably won't be certain. See, Danny is a better person to me than me because once I got like a certain amount of resources, I would have just like chilled somewhere. I would have gone to an island and just been like, you know, just screw, screw, forget all this other, all this other stuff. But she actually wants to help. She's like, no, I can't just leave it. So, 
Yeah, so people looks like they're confirming it to me. It is implied that Tyrion is highly skeptical, but it is not definitive. So yeah, that is exactly what, what happens. So cool. Uh, Illyria would know the truth. So maybe they just have to torture Illyria's yeah. fat ass until he calls <laughs> Tyrion certainly Just starve him a little. Tyrion yeah. recognizes there, that there is some treachery afoot. There's something going on for sure. He's wise enough to see it. He's been in King's Landing long enough. Yep. Yep. I, I am really looking forward to the Martells and all of this. Like um, the Sand Snake, is it Tyene that's in King's Landing? Um, as well as yeah. Ariane with Fagon. Like I think that's going to be some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. I, th- I, yeah. I just don't think anyone is going to be, I don't think anyone's going to really believe, any one of the POV characters is going to truly believe in Fagon. Like, I think everyone who has a POV character is going to be in there is going to be skeptical. I think the masses are going to love it. But I think that's the contrast that Martin's going to go for, is that the masses Mm -hmm. are going to love it. They love this story because it's a great story. He's the handsome, young, dashing prince from across the sea who's Mm -hmm. coming back to reclaim his throne from the evil crazy lady who's on the throne right now. Like, they're going to love that shit. But I think everyone who has eyes on it is going to be skeptical like all of the lords who have a you know or P, I mean POV characters all of the POV characters who are going to have who are going to interact with Fagon I think they're all going to be skeptical for various reasons but and I think it's going to be that contrast that's going to be fascinating like I, I definitely see that to me is far thing. more interesting yeah oh Go so ahead, it's Quinn. Lady Nim in King's Landing okay Nim okay yeah <clears throat> who's kind of a badass so Okay, so what about Alaris, who's over uh, at the Citadel, Citadel, purportedly, possibly learning about dragons over there? Could she return with some interesting information regarding, like, how... Yeah, Alaris, Sorella. She's she's embedded with Marwyn's... She's embedded with Marwyn's little uh, mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. I, was, I, was, I was thinking about, just the other day, what potentially the Citadel plot in uh, A Winds of Winter could be like. And, you know, I would imagine that that group of friends that we see in the beginning, probably by the time we get to the end of A Feast for Crows, they've probably developed a certain like, oh, something's going on with Pate, right? I, I bet, mm-hmm. I can almost guarantee you that group of friends is like, something strange about Pate. So I could see like the <laughs> Sam Pate, Pate's in. out. Yeah, I want- I, Pate is out though. Once he's got that key in the book, I think he's out think of he's there. You think he's out of so. there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. I could I I could see a part of it. I could see an element to it being like, you know, what's going on with this guy? Like, what is he up to? Let's just try and figure this out. Well, they'll wonder once he disappears. Yeah, <laughs> they'll wonder what the hell happened. <laughs> for, for sure. But he's there with Sam, and they're all tied up in that same thing. And I'm 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 curious to see how that plays out. Yep, me too. I want to know. And is it all going to go down before Euron like destroys the Citadel? Like. Oh, I'm gonna be so sad when the Citadel burns. Like, so the sad. Of I get emotional thinking about the Library of Alexandria mm-hmm. burning down. So, like, Old Town, the, <laughs> it's like all of the knowledge being burned just like hurts me. It hurts yeah. me. George is going to hurt me with with Old Town burning, but it's gonna burn. It's gonna all those who love books are going to be personally attacked. Thanks, George. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have another super chat. Oh, do we? Uh-huh. Hey, there it is. Elisa Patience. Odds that Young Griff and Danny are at all related. Well, if you go back far enough, I do think that Young Griff is Blackfire, um, yeah. either on bo- one side or both sides. Um, but he's not, and he might be 
half black fire and half descendant of Aryan bright flame, if you really want to go out there. Um, so that would be very distant black relations. I, I don't think, I mean, that's it. She's, he's either Rhaegar's son or he's like at best a black fire and at worst a piss water prince grown from a bean. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be piss water prince. Like, I feel like, I don't know. No, I, I like just, the black like, fire idea, yeah. I think black fire just is so much more. And it makes sense given, you know, Martin is giving us all of these stories from the, um, in the Dunkin' Egg novellas. We're getting all of these stories about the black fire rebellions. And it seems like if we're getting all these stories about the black fire rebellions, that's going to pay off. Like... And the pay, the only way that the black to me the only way that the Blackfire Rebellion like all spending that much time on the Blackfire Rebellion the only way that pays off is if we're going to see a Blackfire and the, the most logical Blackfire is is Aegon. Since we were just talking about the burning of the the Citadel, um, so if Euron does that, like I would wonder like why maybe maybe I don't know this is kind of like out there since John Connington does like have grayscale, if there was an outbreak, I could see Euron just being like you know what I'm not even going to risk it. <laughs> And just burning like the entire thing. Oh yes, George will get us on the side of Euron. Yeah. That'll be great. Like, yo, actually, Euron did the right thing. Hashtag Euron did nothing wrong. Yeah. I, don't know. I can see it now. Because Grayscale is a serious threat to everybody. Yeah. Well, and there was a Lord. No, wait, is it? You just need to exfoliate. You just need to. You just oh. need to buy a good loofah and just exfoliate really well. The next and night, the good cheese grater. Totally fine. Uh, this, this yeah. surgery has never been performed before by anybody, but you, you, this new Citadel guy that's never done surgery before, yeah. he can do it. We definitely don't need yeah. like gloves or anything. No gloves, nothing. Right, and then, and then, and then <laughs> once the surgery is successful, then then all of you know academia is just so, you know, they just don't care about knowledge, real knowledge and truth. That they're like, we don't care that you just cured. Grace I wonder scale. what he did with all the toxic <laughs> skin. Like, did he dump it in the trash? I would, I would hate a servant to, like, touch it, to touch the trash he and then put be like, it in oh. a bowl of brown. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> Into the bowl of brown. Oh, <laughs> no, everyone's got it. Oh, Internal grayscale. We're back in, to But food. in all seriousness, guys, in all seriousness, uh, Old Town did have some sort of disease breakout quarantine situation where the Lord Hightower sealed the city and three quarters of the city died. He did the right thing, but then the people killed him afterwards anyway. So that has already happened yeah. at Old Town once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hashtag put it in the soup. <laughs> uh, cheesecloth had a question um we were talking about the burning of the lo- of the citadel in the libraries does anyone remember what happened with Tyrion um borrowing books from the winterfell library that then got burned by the cat's paw like which books he were one had to do with dragons i can't remember do either of you do any of you remember no. like what books Tyrion was specifically looking at i think the thing we're supposed to notice is that one of them was about dragons i think that's pretty much the important okay. part and we also know that he was rooting around at Castle Black. Um, and in the Doom video that I um, am working on right now, uh, I'm talking about how the Faceless Men are notorious library thieves. And if they stole library books from the Citadel, they were also probably stealing books from Valyria for the hundred years that they coexisted before the Doom. And they've probably been to Castle Black and checked out those books where some of the oldest records are of the long night and northern history. So you have to think about the faceless men. They prize information. They depend on information. So we should assume they know they've been to all the libraries and they've looked at all the books and stolen or read what they needed to. So in any case. Or they get it on interlibrary loan. You know, they just go into the catalog and they're like, hey, like, hey, can can 
Can Castle Black send a book down here and cross the narrow sea? We'd like to. We'd like to read that book. Can you have it sent Takes over a while to the by Raven. branch? The, I mean, the ravens <laughs> can't really carry a whole scroll over there, so it doesn't always work. Yeah, this, what if two ravens uh, <laughs> had it on a line? I was just waiting for this. Oh God! What held onto the dorsal guided feathers? <laughs> okay. All right, well, we are an hour and 45 minutes and two bong hits into the stream, so... Yeah. Where oh my God. searches. <laughs> uh, you also right. missed that Sir Tomard Long called it a bowl of gray, which <laughs> is delightful. Thank you. Thank you, Sir Tomard. All right. We are that. going there. Now I regret censoring out all the Miro stuff. We might as well lift that in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh uh, that is a badass scene, though, where Barristan owns Miro with the staff, though, is it not? Yeah. Um, I, I've got a... One of my LML and 13 videos that I never put out was one comparing the White Walkers and other symbolism. Um, I talked about that in Blood of the Other series, but I was going to do just one dedicated for that. And I noticed that that scene with Sir Barristan beating Miro is a mirror to the White Walkers beating Sir Waymar in the prologue. There's so many parallels to it. It's uh, it's not even funny. So it it casts Barristan as the White Walker and Miro as Waymar, um, and it's it's very interesting to read it that way. So I will get to that when I get back to symbolism here. And let me just actually stop and ask the chat for a moment. How much? Uh, what do you guys think of the direction that I have taken my channel here in the last? six or seven months since the show has ending. I would love to see some comments here. I did the King Brand series, which was some symbolism, but more talking about like the endings of the show and the actual plot mechanics of what Green Seer Kings are like. And then we've done all this Danny stuff, which is no symbolism at all. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, how are you guys uh, dealing with that? Because I've, you know, I do plan, I'm not like giving up symbolism, but I've sort of put it on the side and I'm doing character analysis here. So there's a part of me that does wonder how much you guys are liking it. So it looks like, oh, you liking it. Yeah. Cheesecloth wants more symbolism theories. Well, I believe you will like the Doom. The Doom has a little bit of symbolism, but it uses it to prove uh, you know, actual plot stuff. But uh, we are gonna cap off the Danny series. After I get through Dance, we're gonna do a symbolic foreshadowing Danny one. So we're gonna go back to the Undying. We're gonna basically look at all the scenes where she appears to be fighting somebody that's like the others we're gonna put them together and try to figure out what might be going on, if there's gonna be any weird connections with Danny and stuff like that. So I will give you at least one solid symbolism Danny episode after we do the dance with Dragons One. And after that, who knows? Someone says character right. analysis and symbolism are not mutually exclusive. Nope. Even before I switched over to character analysis, I was trying to you know, show how symbolism affects the characters more and more, but it definitely mm -hmm. like, you know, I feel like most of you guys did, everybody who's a Danny fan, like it really hurt to see what the show did. And uh, I felt like people weren't even ready to talk about a lot of the like in the weeds symbolism stuff because everyone was just so upset about the show. So I do feel like it's been good to, to address that and to just, you know, help restore faith in the character and celebrate the character that we like. Uh, doing things like reading the taunting of the Stell Swords. I don't know if you caught that, Melanie, while you were on the way here, but we read, um, we did a group read of Danny taunting all the sellsword captains in Yunkai. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I missed it. I'll have to go Pretty back good. and catch it. I'll rewatch. It was cool. Alisa wearing black. Oh. Wow. And you are known for wearing pretty much pink all the time, too. So I know that means a lot for you. That's, uh, oh. it really did affect people on a deep level. It really did, man. Danny, Danny 
meant a lot and means a lot to a lot of people. And uh, so, yeah, definitely good to set the record straight. And, and I mean, it's just so apparent. And I, I just, I continue to struggle with the fact that people are running around, people that claim to be intelligent analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire, been doing it for years, and all of a sudden they're gonna try to say that the book ending was more or less how the books are gonna end, and that we should all accept that Danny's gonna be a mass murderer and stuff. I was like, have, are we reading the same books? And that's why we've done this very detailed, weighty reread of all Danny's chapters, going through her decisions one by one, the small comments she makes to people, the big decisions she makes, and again and again, I feel like her character shines through very very clearly so i i really just don't understand how how that got turned around in some people's minds but yeah i did it might be cool like you're saying to do like the mystical foreshadowing and do some throw a bit more of the like how does the symbolism line up with what we're doing with the character arc mm-hmm. um good way to cap off this kind of danny thing totally agree about, like yeah a lot of people just wanted to hate danny anyway and then when the show like gave them a reason to be like, Danny sucks, they just like latched on to right it. right onto it, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. yeah, we just even had an example of it in the chat. It's like people that criticize Danny like nine times out of 10, they're not coming with any kind of intelligent criticism, really, mm-hmm. um, that I, that's yeah. what I've seen. But maybe that's just the internet for you, like nine out of 10 comments on anything I don't have it, <laughs> yeah. so who knows, but I don't know. Um, like I said, it's, it's, un, it, it, it's hard to, I don't know. You, the people that are backing the show ending are basically saying that the character that we've known for five books is going to do some radical changes in the last two books and become a completely different person. And I don't really, I don't really think that's going to happen. I'm so. going to take over the world. For me, it's just all wrapped up in the bells scene. Like everybody, I'm crazy pretty now. Much agreed that like it just didn't make any sense whatsoever. I it just didn't make insane. sense. I am now insane because I heard these bells and now I must kill. There was, yeah. <laughs> Since we talked about Fagon a little more concretely, let's, you know, many people have figured out that the bell, the, if, the, if D&D got this idea of someone hearing bells and like losing it, it would be John Con because of the, <laughs> the famous battle of the bells where he, you know, this is the thing he's obsessing about, how he should have been like Tywin and should have killed everyone in the city and he didn't. And so Robert got away and then beat him and he was disgraced and it had to be an exile and be a drunk and sacrifice his reputation. All these things all goes back to the Battle of the Bells. So how is John Khan's potential trauma and rage and the increasing grayscale driving him to be desperate how is that going to play into the king's landing devastation he will hear the bells and then start aggressively rubbing his grayscale on everybody (laughs) (laughs) well that's one thing and you get a disease and you get a disease everyone gets a disease (laughs) i brought something and i want to share it with you (laughs) oh that was great Mystica Fairy mentions that the bells are a victorious sound for Danny, which is a really good point. Like Danny associates bells with like yes. victory, not with like trauma. The Dothraki mm. bells in their hair. Yeah, right. That's right. And even in, in in what we were reading, uh, Georgia Martin talks about the bells whirling in her hair, and she's all confident, like the bells. And it's like, like it doesn't yeah. make any sense to have her just right. <gasps> bells are good. I'm insane because of the bells. I must kill. It's so. <laughs> and some yeah. people were pointing that out in the wake of the show that like. 
Danny is the yeah. last person that should be like set off by bells. She should be like, yes, bells, I have won. Like, exactly. Hey. Right. I mean, and even the show canon, it contradicts itself because there was an earlier season where I think Vari says, like, the bells never mean surrender. And you're like, oh, apparently now they do. Okay, cool. Whatever. You don't even pay attention to your own canon of your own. So show. much cognitive um, dissonance. Ah. It's like, yeah, that's not what bells mean. But yeah, if anyone's going to go crazy, it's going to be. John Con, like it might be that like King's Landing is gonna surrender and he decides to keep fighting. Like he may not burn the city down, but he may decide that like to continue fighting even if Aegon tells him to stop. One more for Rhaegar. You know, they hmm. could be towards the end of the battle and he hears the bells ring and decides like he's gonna keep, you know. Okay. Just start swinging his sword and killing a bunch of people. Like No, I, I agree. Like it just makes sense that the bells are going to set John Con off and I am totally in agreement that he's going to do some sort of rash thing that is self-defeating and mm. is going to get him killed, number one, and is going to foil whatever plan he and uh, Fagon were plotting together. It's going to... There's going to be that moment where there's that, like, that, that choice where he could ignore the bells and do the right thing and, and follow the plan or hear the bells go crazy and just be like berserker mode. And um, I, I think what is going to happen with John Con is whatever plan he's hatching with Fagon, uh, his insanity is going to basically like break apart that plan and make it not work. I still think the destruction of King's Landing is going to be accidental. Right, mm. Because it seems like George mm. R. Martin has just set up this whole ticking time bomb, like all this wildfire. And like that could have very well, when Tyrion set the bay on fire, well, that could have been the event that killed, that destroyed all the King's Landing. It really could have. Like if a spark had just gotten to the right place, it because like Sansa talks about like looking out her window and like seeing like the blazing hellfire, it's still burning after days. So I mean, it only takes like one hit in the wrong place with a dragon to be like, this is it. Because you, because Aegon had to have set it up in a way where if like you light one cast, right, then it, it, it ignites the whole thing, right? Because he wanted to take <laughs> out everybody. He wanted to take out them all. So not Aegon, Ares, but yeah. Uh, yeah, Nine Nichols points out that grayscale can cause insanity, which is one of the things that we know about grayscale. Oh, yeah. ah. So again, John Con is, is primed to go, to, to start losing it. Nice. Um, because he has grayscale. And also, I was thinking, um, John Con is also primed to turn specifically against the small folk because the Battle of the Bells is where the small folk protected Robert. Mm -hmm. Like, they um, were, that was specifically, he was going in and trying to oh, hunt down ugly. Robert, I think, is the Battle of the Bells, right? Well, so that's what I was going to pipe in to say was that maybe that's how Baylor, the Sept of Baylor, is, is connected to Cersei and John Con being stubborn or something like that. Yeah. Right, because so John Con would have a reason not just to turn again, not just to like go crazy in the midst of battle, but specifically to start attacking small folk or believing that the small folk are against him and mm. that the small folk are plotting to do the opposite of what he wants to do because that's what happened um, in the Battle of the Bells is they were protecting Robert and hiding Robert from him so he wasn't able to defeat Robert. Yeah. Um, so yeah. he would be primed to start being super suspicious of the small folk specifically um, of King's Landing, not just anyone. So makes sense to me. That makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. Nicely done, guys. Nicely done. And thanks to the chat, too. Teamwork, everyone. Oh, oh yeah, that was a good comment from Mama Pipples. Maybe Cersei mm-hmm. may get Grayskull. I hope not. <laughs> I want Cersei to marry the Night King and live happily ever after. Someone else pointed out, what if uh, King's Landing is burned because the Grayskull gets out? Good point. So there's... It's kind of what I was thinking about with the Citadel. Maybe, I don't know. It, it, basically, there are like eight Chekhov's guns, all of which are pointed at King's Landing. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> we One should... of them's going to go off, or multiple. And to dip into the symbol, symbolic well for a second, the whole idea of King's Landing refers to Azor Ahai, the moon meteor. This is the whole idea of the landing site, the burning tree, and the pyre of smoke. King's Landing is one of those ground zero places, so there's lots of explosive symbolism. I mean, it's there over and over again. And in fact, um, there is a little bit of moon meteor symbolism before she attacks one of the cities that I clipped in here. So I will get that here, yes. Full dark had fallen by the time Young Kai departed from her camp. And this is after the taunting of the sellswords, basically. It promised to be a gloomy night, moonless, starless, with a chill wet wind blowing from the west. A fine black night, thought Danny. The fires burned all around her, small orange stars strewn across hill and field. So she looks up, and there's no moon, and the sky is black and cloudy. But where are the stars? Oh, they fell to the ground. So this is the entire long night. The moon's gone, the sky is blocked, and the stars have fallen to earth. And this is right when Danny's going to attack the city. So interesting use of that long night symbolism right there when Danny is getting ready to make an attack. Well, there's a lot of that right before the Battle of the Blackwater, which is what Quinn was pointing out, that the Battle of the Blackwater was a pos- was one of those times that the city could have just blown up because there's so much wildfire going on. You have all of that symbolism around Blackwater, and it even looks like the bay is on fire Green and from demon. a certain light. Like, if you were looking at the city and you couldn't see the bay, you would just see fire. It would look like the city was on fire. You have Cersei burning the Tower of the Hand, which I think is symbolic of Cersei somehow being involved in yeah. this somehow like and she burns it with wildfire like the city's gonna go up in a green blaze of glory i thought that was what was gonna happen a at the end of game of thrones i thought it was gonna be like right because you know you remember in season two where cersei almost poisons tommen because she thinks this is it i'm gotta we, we gotta get i'm gonna i'm not gonna let yes. them take us obviously and who knows what daenerys may or could have done to cersei if she had captured her so i was thinking like cersei would be like okay the battle is lost i'm just gonna blow everybody up with me I could have told that would have been a better ending to me than Danny just being like suddenly let me just kill everybody. It would have made a lot more sense. It would have been. And absolutely. it's very Mad King 2.0. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much Mad King 2.0 and Cersei is already gearing herself up to you know doing a oh, very yeah. good interpret like very good impersonation of Mad King Ares right mm-hmm. now and she's only going to get worse. So Cersei being the one to just be like, "Well, Better blow up the city because I don't want to lose it. I would rather see the city burn than to lose control of the city is exactly the kind of shit she that would. Cersei she would She doesn't do care somehow. about small folk. She's not care at all. Not even a little bit. No. No. <laughs> no, she, she has some strong sociopathic tendencies. There's mm-hmm. a severe lack of empathy uh, going on there. And an inability to see anybody else's perspective whatsoever. So. Yep. Um, Sorry I'm quiet. I'm having like my own like thought corner over here about uh mm. green green fire symbolism and the idea of uh king's landing being the landing of kings and um 
just the idea of it going up in this big green blaze of glory. Um, I've been kind of, I don't want to say too much about it. Uh, some other folks and I have been talking about uh, red, blue, and green symbolism and the idea of King's Landing, which is essentially like this really corrupt city, uh, dying, rotting city, kind of like being returned to rubble and being returned to nature. But um, I don't want to get like completely off the rails here. So, can I just say, yeah. Melanie's Thought Corner. <laughs> That's where I am. <laughs> Love that. It symbolically parallels, um, I think the fattest leech has pointed out in one of uh, her essays, one that she talks about incest, that King's Landing is given similar, um, yes. there's symbolism similar to Craster's Keep. Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. And Craster's Keep is this like den of incest that, you know, seems like it should be destroyed. Um, but they're both called like midden heaps or rubbish yes. heaps. Like Craster's mm-hmm. Keep is specifically built on top of a rubbish heap. And King's Landing is called a rubbish heap a couple smells of times. Smells like a rubbish heap. Um, mm-hmm. mm. Smells like a rubbish heap. Um, Volantis has something similar. And I know I think I know we've talked before about the possibility that before Danny before Danny gets to Westeros, she's going to burn Volantis. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, like the inner part of the Volantis, where all the the slave masters and all the wealthy live. Um, and that has similar symbolism too, of like it's corrupt and rotting. And just it is ready Absolutely. to yep. go up in smoke. And that King's inner Landing city in has Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. And King's Landing has I think you're right, Melanie, to bring that up, that King's Landing has some similar symbolism there. It it's a rotting city that you know, it's like a it's a cancer. A it's like a corruption. sore spot on It's a garbage fire. The, That's what we're talking about here. Garbage, garbage fire. Garbage fire. Burn the garbage. <laughs> Hashtag dumpster I mean, when fire. It, blows, it will be. <laughs> Hashtag King's Landing, hashtag dumpster fire. Yeah. I mean, it will be. Mm-hmm. It will be That's a dumpster good. fire. All right. So, Moving yeah. on. Oops, sorry, guys. Uh, well, actually, just to put a pin on the stars thing, there we get the same language also at Dragonstone. And thank you very much for bringing up the fact that it is at King's Landing. Um, and maybe that would be a good idea to get back into some symbolism. I've been promising a Battle of the Blackwater symbolism special. I've dipped into it a few times, but it's like literally six chapters of symbolism. It's like all symbolism. So maybe I should do maybe I should do that afterwards. But so this is a quote. Um, so remember the first one in Yunkai was. There, you know, a moonless night, starless, and then it said the fires burned all around her, small orange stars strewn across hill and field. Now here is the Crescent prologue on Dragonstone, Danny's home in A Clash of Kings. A night wind whispered through the great windows, sharp with the smell of the sea. Torches flickered along the walls of Dragonstone, and in the camp beyond, he could see hundreds of cook fires burning as if a field of stars had fallen to earth. Above, the comet blazed red and malevolent. So. There, there, the important symbolism is linking the idea of fallen stars to the comet. But of course, Dragonstone itself has all the exploding moon symbolism, and there's more in the paragraphs before and after that. But I wanted to bring that up because it was parallel to the quote in Danny's chapter. So she's seeing this imagery of the fallen stars, and we also see it at King's Landing, and we see it at Dragonstone. So pretty cool stuff there. Star fall, yeah, star fall. I, I, uh, so let's talk about House Dane. Let's do that on the way out of here. Um, I do think so. I have, I have mentioned that because I don't think Danny is a Dane um, or John, but both Danny and John have a little bit of Dane blood if you go back like three generations, um, some of which are incest generations. So they actually could have a, a decent amount of Dane blood. But so you guys know that I have suggested 
that if Dawn is to come out to play, if we're going to see Dawn in action ever, that the way that it's going to happen is that Darkstar is going to steal it. Because most of you guys, and some of you in the audience may not know, there's a thing called the five-year gap, which refers to George's original plan before he did Feast and Dance. He planned on having a five-year gap after Storm of Swords so everybody could grow up. And then he was going to come back with a five-year gap having happened, do a bunch of flashback and catch us up. It didn't work. He wrote some of it. It didn't work, and he abandoned it. And so what has happened now is that all of the characters, originally, he planned on being five years older by the end of the story than they're actually going to be. And George has talked about this, and he said, if a 12-year-old's got to save the world, so be it. And people are thinking of Bran here. But the point about the House Dane is that before the five-year gap, we had this character, Edric Dane, Ned Dane, who runs around uh, as Barrack Squire, which is very significant because Barrack is a walking Azor High Greenseer symbolism guy, and his adopted son is Ned Dane, who looks very Valerian. He's named after Ned Stark, but he's a Dane. I've talked about some of the, his symbolism. But after the, after the five-year gap went away, like before, Ned Dane was going to be 18, or 19 by the end of the story. So this is somebody who could be awarded uh, Dawn and could leave Starfall. He could join somebody's army, Fagon or Danny's army, and we'd have Dawn running around. And I have, I've always speculated that if Dawn's gonna get into somebody's hands, it'll probably be John. He seems like the kind of guy, especially if it's really ice, then John should wield it. Um, but it's gonna get to him by somebody basically taking it out of Starfall and then getting killed. So since we have the five-year gap, we can't do this now because Ned's only 13. He's not even like strong enough to pick up Dawn, which is a great sword. And so we get Darkstar. And I have speculated that the whole reason that Darkstar even exists is literally because George needed an older character to get Dawn out of Starfall and into action. And instead of being awarded it, Darkstar, being a shitty human being, is obviously going to steal it. And so that is what is going to happen. He's going to steal it. We're gonna, he's going to be fake Arthur Dane, essentially, and he will join Fagon's Kingsguard. And we'll have fake Rhaegar's son and fake Arthur Dane, essentially, and they'll be happy for a little bit until Fagon dies. Not Fagon, I'm sorry. Fake Arthur Dane, which is Darkstar. He dies. Dawn comes out, gets, you know, somehow John gets it. So, so do you think Dawn could come out to play, Quinn? Do you think that, what do you think Darkstar is going to do? Is he going to steal Dawn? What do you think about him interacting with Fagon? What do you think the Danes are going to do? Any of those questions, feel free to grab them. Uh, yeah, I like your I like your theory about him stealing Dawn. It's pretty cool. I don't know exactly what George R. Martin is planning on do, doing with Danes and all these characters. I mean, there's so many things that are hugely tangential that could potentially... Oh, that appear tangential. That could be expanded upon. So we'll see. Yeah, but I do dig it. I like it. It seems plausible. Plus, stealing dawn, so it's good, you know, yeah. symbolism, stolen dawn, he's of exactly. the night, and mm -hmm. the long night is like a stolen dawn, it's a dawn that never comes, so, yeah, there's lots of good stuff there. Melanie or Gretchen? I was just gonna say, like, you don't make a sword as awesome as dawn and just, like, hide it away and never use it, mm -hmm. so, like, it's gotta come out. It's too cool not to play with. Sorry, I'm just trying not to make a bunch of dirty jokes because that's all that they've got in my head when you're talking about swords coming out. Well, we are past the two-hour mark, so. Sorry. I mean, you literally had quotes earlier about about the Titan's bastard saying that he should bring out his sword. like, And now you're talking about, like, well, the, you know, the sword's got to come out. And I'm like, mm -hmm. We're all friends it's gotta here. It's got to come out to play. It's got to come out to play. <laughs> so... 
So John, obviously, John, it would make sense if John wielded it. He's part Dane. He's like a little bit Dane. And if, of course, if Dawn is the original ice, as I have proposed and people have sung, then, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> then, uh, then, uh, then, then John would make sense because he's, he's the Stark and he, he would need ice, the real ice. And all those lines about how he's not happy with Longclaw and he keeps thinking about his father's sword, ice, and he wishes he had ice will be fulfilled because he'll get Dawn, which is really ice. But the other tinfoil is that Dawn, being pale as milk glass, is actually functions like a glass candle. And, it, you know, in a, similar to the sword of Shannara, for, the, for the, of those of you guys who have read the Shannara series, it's a sword that you don't use to chop with. Like, it, it has magic that reveals the truth of things and stuff like that. And there's other stories where you have a magic sword and the actual pur- purpose of it is not to chop things. And so what if Dawn has a magical ability? What if it's like a glass candle? What if it's uh, a dragon killing sword in the same way that Valyrian steel might kill others? Dawn is like a white Valyrian steel sword, so could it be used to kill a dragon if it's really ice, you know? I'm just throwing the tinfoil against the wall here, guys. Mm-hmm. I don't know either. Someone said, do you think Fire and Blood will turn out irrelevant to A Song of Ice and Fire? No. No. And how no. is that even possible? No. And That's what I was laughing at. So many yeah. things that parallel Fire and Blood already. What we, yeah, I mean. I mean. I'm going to be devoting my YouTube channel for the foreseeable future to talking about the dance, the dance of the dragons and how it's relevant to our understanding of, you know, the next two books in the story. So totally relevant. I mean, it is a song of ice and fire. It's a part of it. Yeah, yeah. Fire yeah. and Blood is layered. It, there's also plenty of symbolism in Fire and Blood as well. And of course, I have dipped into a lot of those dragon battles in many essays because they are. There's always mythical astronomy when the dragons fight. That yep. is a guaranteed. So yeah, it's all over the place. And even beyond a song of ice and fire, the theme of fire and blood runs through a lot of George's work. So I think it's something that's on his mind that he's uh, trying to work out mm-hmm. the kinks on. Right, right. You can see that he's echoing like characters and plot arcs and kind of the interaction between different archetypes of characters like in I mean he does that through a song of ice and fire Mm -hmm. but he's just continuing to do that in fire and blood absolutely while also giving us like a a very in-depth look at both like the the Targaryens and how they're not a monolith even they're not even a you know as a family like they're so different but I of course like he's very clearly exploring the you know the disempowerment of women um, as you know, Melanie and I both are interested in talking about disempowered and silenced women. That's a huge part of Fire and Blood. Is Martin? You know, I'm like, interested in that too. Come on. <laughs> like, yeah, I know you are. No, you, you guys you have both specifically are, done work on that. Yeah, specifically done work on it. That's what I don't I know. Maybe. No, I don't know. This is kind of like out of left field, but I am working on this graphic novel, <laughs> which like all of my female, all of my characters are female. All of the lead characters. So maybe you guys could take a look at it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you, I don't because I don't want to like be like look at it because I know some people don't have time to like read a whole script. So it's like if you want it to, I could show it to you. I have time. Yes, please. Yes, please. Okay, Melody and I are both like. <laughs> after the stream, <laughs> I'll send it to you guys. Oh, cool. You have beta awesome. readers. Excellent. So I will. I will put out the last call on Danny questions for the chat. If anybody wants to get in any final questions about Danny oh, that they would like to hear us talk about. Okay, so we got we got a similar question coming in from two different people. 
which is the obvious one. What about John and Danny? What, how is their relationship going to manifest in a way that is more satisfying than uh, Ray and Kylo Ren, which really got screwed up there at the end. Um. <laughs> Hashtag boat sex. Boat sex. Hashtag, what was that? You cut out. What was it? Oh, boat sex. Boat right, yes. sex. So Hashtag we've talked sex. about this a little bit, I think, Melanie and Gretchen and I on some of the Danny streams, but I think that it's likely John and Danny might have a romance, but not one that is intended to like reestablish the line or have children. Um, I think it will be, they will, they, if you look at their characters and what they're going through, they do seem to be set up to appreciate each other and to respect what each other does and stands for. And I think that will be very important to creating this alliance and sort of like on the show where we saw that John and Danny had to gain each other's respect so that John could convince Danny that this was a real threat she needed to come north. We'll see some of that. Yeah, what do you guys think? I like the idea of, uh, you know, once John's heritage is revealed, that becoming something that pulls them closer together. I would like to and, see that. you know, you have the whole history of Targaryens intermarrying, which they, I don't know, to me that seems like kind of a, a, a weak reason for them to get together because uh, if any of the characters are going to blow off tradition, it's going to be John and Danny. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think maybe less than a romantic inclination between them, it would be almost more of like a familial bond between them that could possibly form. I would love it if George had the, the courage and imagination to do that, to like set this up and not have them be a romantic relationship, but actually like two intelligent, empathetic people teaming up to try to save the world that respect each other. Like that would be, yeah, that would be interesting. Now maybe I'm we'll like see. just bitter, mm -hmm. but a lot of times I hate romances. Like in movies, I'm like, why do we always need a romance? Mm. Between the, why does the main character always need a partner? Like they don't. Well, it's often forced. Yeah. It is often just like a checklist thing that doesn't really make much sense with the rest of the plot. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see. What I just does. don't think that there's enough time to, to explore like a, a real deep romance between them mm -hmm. in terms of like... Well, they could definitely do some trauma bonding as they fight the others or something, you know. <laughs> right. There could be some trauma bonding. And if they, as two consenting adults, want to enjoy some time together, like, great. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Like, they can enjoy their time together. I just... Especially because I do think that Danny is not going to survive... Um, the series because I think she's going to sacrifice herself. I, I feel like there's just not enough time to really explore, like a romance, romance. Like if, and even if they want to, you know, spend the night together, I'm not sure that John's going to be able to perform. Well, that's the other question: is yeah. the John physiology question <laughs> about whether yeah. is he like so. as a zombie with no blood flow? It's actually up to Brand. Even... This is it's all up to Brand. If like. Because I think if John is resurrected by Mel, he's going to be like Barrack, which means mm -hmm. no no boner. But if Bran gets involved and does a Green Seer resurrection, it might be of a higher quality, and then maybe it's it's pro boner. So 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 Bran has to go through the thought process of wondering whether or not he's going to give his like dead brother that he's resurrecting the ability to have a boner. There's, there's going to be a. That's exactly how he's going to write it. That is exactly how he's going to write it. Pro bono pun in here somewhere. <laughs> I did my best. Yes. Nice try. Bran is very is is Bran pro bono or not? Does Bran does Bran work 
Pro bono. Pro bono. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think he cares about silver and gold. But. <laughs> no. The other thought that I had that I mentioned a little bit earlier in the chat is that I think it is important that regardless of are. whatever romantic. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, no, who was, someone was saying that earlier. It's been foreshadowed. Um, I think it was Josh Thompson was saying that that he could go down on Danny. Um, well, it's like Miss Sunday and Grey Worm all over again. Be like, hey, we can still we can still get down. Totally. That's cool. That's a spirit. Okay, so wait. Um, we we have... Can I... Oh, can sorry. I, go ahead, Gretchen. Uh, go ahead. Show Miss Sunday. Show Miss Sunday, obviously. Go right, ahead. yeah. Not in the... That, like, one thing I think is important to think about is that regardless of whether or not there's any romantic or emotional or, you know, mystical or spiritual spiritual bond between John and Danny, whatever that looks like, I think it is important that John and Danny can't have children Mm -hmm. like because there's the whole thing about we were talking about this when it came to the corruption of king's landing and incest and inbreeding like martin is very much anti-incest anti-inbreeding and is always in all of his work it's a pervasive theme yeah it's entirely negative it's self-defeating and it always ends up um destroying itself that's the self-defeating factor and so the idea that the last two official scions of House Targaryen are infertile, I think is is, is an important thematic yes, element. That John cannot have children, Danny can't either, and they are the they are the last of the dragons. Like they are the last of the Targaryen, the last of the Valyrians, the last of the dragons. Like and they can't have any more children, so the line ends here. This is this is where it ends, and I think that's important. So even if they can have sex, even if, if Bran, you know, works pro bono with John, like they're not gonna I don't think they're gonna have a magical baby like I think that is it, totally against everything that Martin wants to say with um and there wouldn't be time anyway because Danny's probably gonna die so yeah I, the only scenario I could put that picture that in is if like they have to do magical baby sacrifice uh but that seems like a really dark way to end so it is really you know. dark baby sacrifice well, I mean, not like literally, but think about what happened with Danny, uh-huh. where in the in Game of Thrones, where the death of Rago somehow figured into the birth of the dragons, mm-hmm. and the others are all about stealing babies. So maybe there's some magical sacrifice that needs to be made. Mm-hmm. But because, like I said, I threw out the idea that maybe Danny has to be the Night Queen, so maybe she's pregnant and she becomes the Night Queen or something. But I don't, I don't know. It seems really kind of weird. So I don't. Yeah, I don't really think it's going to be about babies and pregnancy. I totally agree with you, Gretchen, that. The idea that they're both probably infertile is important for symbolism. I think that points us towards the idea that there'll be no more dragons or others at the end, mm-hmm. that they're going to cancel each other out, and, and that that's, this is the last gasp of magic, the swan song of magic. That really how this, is, this whole story reads to me anyway. So, uh, right. Dee Valano sent in a super chat earlier that I missed, and she has repeated the question, so thank you, Dee. Oh, yeah, no, that we talked about Oh, no, we that. did. Yeah, we did answer that, Dee. I, I guess I didn't put it on the screen and acknowledge her and give her the... Uh, right. But we did, yeah, we did kick that subject around, yeah. So, or maybe is... Okay, do you think the history... And Yes. So, well, let's, let's t- tackle that question a different way. So, we've already talked about the idea that the Dance of the Dragons has a ton of symbolic foreshadowing for the endgame. And Gretchen, you're going to be working to unpack a lot of that. We've talked about a few of the parallels mm-hmm. already. Um, We've all, the, another thing that you're going to talk about, and I've already sneaked a peek at Gretchen's first essay, uh, the script, but one of the things you're going to talk about is the idea that George gave us um, all of you know, the dance with the dragons first in, you know, in the little side books and then you know, in, in Fire and Blood and the World of Ice and Fire. 
because he's trying to prepare us for what's going to happen when Danny starts using her dragons or when Euron steals a dragon and when we see dragons fighting. He wants us to know how horrific it's going to be. That's that that message is driven home over and over in all these dragon battles that we see. And the other the other part is the idea that Westeros, you know, tends to like kings better than queens. And we mentioned the idea that Fagon will probably be popular. Fagon has a penis. Uh, Danny does not. And that has been a thing in Westeros, especially with the queen who never was, who plays a large part in the dance. So more than just symbolic foreshadowings, there are important historical precedents that will matter in universe to the people there. Like Danny's going to run into the same problems that the queen who never was did. Um, and when the dragons fight, we will see a lot of the same things that we saw there. So there's a lot of reasons to get into Fire and Blood and to consider it relevant. I think all of the side books that George does are relevant. For example, Blood Raven was developed in the Duncan Egg books before we met him at the end of A Storm of Swords so that he wasn't just some old guy in a cave, but we're like, oh shit, it's Blood Raven, he's still alive. Like, so all the side books are pretty, pretty important to the story, I think. Yeah, like dragon dragons. <laughs> I mean, it's very well said in a um, Winds of Winter pre-release chapter that everywhere the dragons danced, the people died. That's, and that's what Fire and Blood shows us is that everywhere the dragons fight, people die. That's what happens. Like people die brutally, horrifically. It's terrible. Like the countryside gets burned, villages get sacked. It's not gonna be. It's not pretty when dragons fight. So this idea that they're gonna it's gonna be like super cool and yeah, dragons fighting is like no, no. Dragon fighting like isn't actually like fun. Cool. It's 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 pretty brutal and savage and brings a lot of death and destruction with it. And so we should be nervous, I think is what you know, after reading Fire and Blood, and then you think about Danny coming west with her dragons. And the possibility that someone on another side, whatever the other side happens to be, might end up with a dragon. So we might see people, two people on dragons fighting each other. Like, that, that should make us nervous, like, anxious, and should be, like, kind of horrifying that, like, dragons are going to come and, like, you know, even if it's just, like, a dragon battle, people still die when, when dragon battles happen. Just even if it's just the dragons, dragon riders fighting each other, like, there's always going to be collateral damage. Right, and that's just what Dee was getting into also as well. It's like the people and the dragons are competing to make the greater horrors. And for all the talk of Danny's dragons being this deadly weapon, they've only killed a couple of people so far, and like a slaver, and like the one, the one person they killed that they shouldn't have was the girl Hosea, of course, when Drogon ate her, the little girl. Um, but apart from right. that, all the killing has been done by men uh, and soldiers mm -hmm. and armies and kings. So, I'm not even still entirely certain that, that Drogon... I think it's it's an open question whether or not Drogon actually killed Hosea. Yeah. At least in my opinion. I agree. Like it... Go hmm. ahead, Quinn. I said I agree. It's a, it's an open question because mm -hmm. that's totally something that they could have set up to cripple Daenerys. Mm. That's true, actually. And there's yeah. there's various forces working against her. I've actually that's never true. thought about mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yep. I was skeptical when I read it. On a thematic point, it doesn't matter in the sense of Danny, like, it shows us how she feels about the dragon power, but it does matter in the sense of the plotting in Marine because we still don't know if Skahas is like manipulating Barristan in a way that we actually don't like or who the real harpy is. Like, there's still unclear what all is going on there. So we shall see. 
Yeah, the point is, yeah, regardless of whether or not Danny, whether or not Drogon actually burned Hosea, Danny feels shitty about it and is, you know, that's what triggers her to chain up her dragons. So yeah. regardless of whether or not it was true, that's what we're supposed to to think about is Danny believes it and therefore behaves in a certain way. And I would love to see more God's Eye action. We are supposed to see the Isle of Faces, which I think will probably be a brand thing. Uh, but I did track a pattern of dragon people going to either the Isle of Faces or places that symbolize the Isle of Faces. Um, in my one of my Danny and the Green Sea, I think it's Danny and the Deep Green Sea one, like Silverwing went to an isle in Red Lake and retired. Um, one of the uh, Adam Valerion went supposedly to the Isle of Faces before he went to one of the battles of Tumbleton. Um, so yeah, it, it's not out of the question that we could see dragons and the Isle of Faces and the God's Eye, you know, happening again. A lot of the dragon battles have been fought around the God's Eye. There's no question about that. So, Carl Karsnark, you and I both have our fingers crossed for that one. But, like I said, this is probably a good place to go ahead and call it. We are at two and a half hours. Thank you to all I mean, my ideally, guests. I was just going to add one final thing. Ideally, oh, yeah, what we would ahead. get is Danny atop Drogon fighting Night King atop a dragon because... That would be so. I mean, that would that would parallel so nicely something that happens in the dance, just to have you know Danny in a dragon battle and and maybe two other dragons involved. That would that would work even better to have <laughs> Danny fighting against two dragons because there's a character who who has that happen that strongly resembles Danny. And it's the two battles that Gretchen is talking about, of course, are the one over the God's Eye and then Sunfire versus Melis and uh, Vagar. So Vagar. Yeah. Those which are happens both nearby. Which happens where? It's nearby. I don't think it's over the God's Eye, but it's like around there. Right? Well, the and, um so the one with Damon remember. and Amond is over the God's Eye. The one with Melis right. and Sunfire is at Rook's Rest. Okay. I believe. Oh, okay, that's at Rook's Rest. Yep. So any case, let's let everyone plug their stuff on the way out and then we will go. Uh Gretchen, you had the mic, so go ahead and you know, we were just talking about it, so Oh, okay. Uh, again, I am Baal the Bard. You can find me on YouTube at as Baal the Bard. And my YouTube channel is called The Dragon's Reign. And I am going to be diving into the Dance of the Dragons and talking about the history, the characters, the symbolism, and potential parallels with what ha we have seen already happening in A Song of Ice and Fire and what we might see to come in the next two books. There you go. Uh, Melanie Lot 7. Hey, my YouTube channel is of the same name, and you can find my one lonely YouTube video on there. Hopefully someday I'll have something else to contribute. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have some ideas in the works. Uh, I got a really fun, kind of like kind of a, a mini quick idea the other day. I don't really want to say what it is yet, but the muse struck and I listened, and uh, the writing bug is uh hitting me again so this is good to hear well your first your first essay was outstanding Thank melanie you. lot seven youtube channel and what was it what was the official title of it uh <laughs> what a good question uh, <laughs> i think it's just the silent sisters in a song of ice and fire um and i do have another essay it's on my wordpress site and it has to do with the king under the hill symbolism that you can find oh, yeah. throughout so um, yeah, maybe WordPress is a better place to find me either way.
I haven't put out a ton, but I think Carrot. So. <laughs> and Quinn, now of Quinn's ideas, formerly Ideas of Ice and Fire. Most importantly, I just put the link in the chat. Get put on the email list for my graphic novel. Audio. Yes. Here's some of the there concept art. Got the whole script and all my concept art in this big old book right here. Nice. Want to want to read a graphic novel about a horror story about witches and you know stuff? You know, get put on the list. You know, it's fun. Do it. <laughs> and also check out my channel if you want. Whatever. What do you draw apart from witches? More witches. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So yeah, get on that mailing list. And there's the link to there. Very good, very good. We are we're all very excited to see how that goes. And now you got two new beta readers too. So oh yeah, yes you do. That should be fun. all right. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming through. And I will see you, like I said, in a week and a half. Not this weekend, but the next weekend. We'll be doing a dance with dragons, Danny stuff. And I may or may not get my Doom video out before then. Maybe, maybe. So that's it. Thank you, my guests. Thank you, my wonderful folks in the chat. And I'll see you soon.